take first watch. new episode of the first watch podcast i am zach and i'm here with cole how are you hi ken hi barbies you ever think about nuclear warfare (laughs) (laughs) about the fucking grim cost of technological advancement that moved the 20th century into the 21st century or how the atomic age is the era in which barbie was able to be invented we've got two big releases exploding on the horizon making money hand over fist Uh, One of them is Warner Brothers' film Barbie, directed by Greta Gerwig, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about. But today's episode is focused on the latest and greatest from Christopher Nolan, Oppenheimer. And here to help us discuss, as we teased last week, is Morgan. How are you? Can't complain. We're back. Movies. Uh, They're feeling more alive right now than they have in a hot minute. I went to see Barbie yesterday, and I went to see a couple of movies on Friday and just everyone's in pink. Everyone's posing in those big boxes. <laughs> I went and saw Oppie, and then I went and saw Barbie, and then I went and saw Oppie again. <laughs> That's the way. The Bobby sandwich. Yes. Oh my God. That voice you're hearing is Riley, who is joining us for this week's discussion of Oppenheimer. How are you? Imagination, life is your creation, baby. I'm doing great. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Before we officially lift the blocks and get this cart on the tracks, I wanted to mention, for those listening, those interested, I believe our next episode is also going to be on the films of Christopher Nolan. As we'll discuss, I've gotten to see three of his films recently in theaters. It has just put me in the mood. Cole, I know you rewatched what was your favorite Nolan film. And uh, next week, we're going to reconvene to talk about Memento. The Prestige, and Inception, these earlier Wally Pfister works to help complement today's discussion. So if you're interested in that, please do stay tuned. I believe Morgan's going to be joining us for that. And uh, Riley, you're more than welcome to join as well, because I know that you're a big Memento fan. I am. That is what we've got cooking up down the pipeline, a little bit of an exploration into one of our bigger directors who we have some slight lack of consensus on throughout Mm -hmm. the 24 years of his career. Maybe some diverging opinions related to some bat people, some spacefaring missions, some time entropy reversal type of thing. So I really look forward (laughs) to unpacking all of that as we get into the conversation. Before we do, let's check in with Morgan. What have you been able to catch up with recently? This exact group, actually, all got together over (laughs) this medium that transcends time and space, wherein we can share a screen and watch a program and rewatch the greatest Hollywood loss in history, second (laughs) second or third. Uh, We watched The Flash, starring everyone's favorite non-binary abuser, and, you know... Controversial figure. (laughs) Yeah. Who of them? This is getting out of hand. <laughs> Not the first time we've made a Phantom Menace joke on this show. <laughs> From the director of It Chapter 2. <sighs> yeah. And Chapter 1, to be fair. Okay, good, I yeah. just think we owe Chapter 2 an apology. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Do we? Shut up. <laughs> you. I mean, comparatively speaking, at least. Yeah, in that sense. I mean, Jesus, nothing has ever felt less like a real movie. <laughs> It is astonishing how bad it is. Words get thrown around like interminable. (laughs) 
it's an entirely unsurprising experience if you've been following this sort of slow and then suddenly not so slow downfall of Marvel you know, abysmal box office returns and a dwindling cultural footprint as well. And then The Flash in a lot of ways feels like a neat summary as well as kind of a capstone on that snowballing downward momentum, basically. It is a dreadful film, really, in every sense. I maybe would stop short of the word diabolical. Uh, There's worse things out there, to be sure. Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, for instance child trafficking movie with jim caviezel (laughs) it's worth noting that one of the movie's most enduring gags in the sense that it's had a presence that involves dozens of infants hurtling towards their death from a skyscraper it's like a sub gray's anatomy level visualization of what's going on there like it just looks so completely amateur in a way that does not reflect the budget of this film Well, it's funny because they've obviously, Andy Machete, filmmaker, has obviously decided in order to thoroughly underscore any potentially unsettling elements of watching dozens of infants hurtling towards their death, they have to be made to look as unrealistic as possible to the point where (laughs) you are just looking at uh, computer-generated dolls, basically. But it's telling that the most enduring gag that I've seen has come from a clip that has been reversed to show a woman screaming as Ezra Miller feeds the microwave a baby. (laughs) When we were watching it, it reminded me a lot of how with superhero movies collapsing and the studio system basically breaking the same way that it did in the late 1960s, I ended up comparing this to Hello, Dolly, which is a little insulting to Hello, Dolly, but it's that same thing of just a bomb so bad it kills off interest in the genre for a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, at least Hello, Dolly put people in front of cameras. Yeah, at least it's in Wally. It's the culmination of this style of fan service as well, where you're just like, let's just shove cameos into this thing and build it all around one sort of big cameo, which is, in case you haven't heard, the return of one Mr. Michael Keaton to the Batman role. But there's just this sense of half-heartedness and just sort of vague lack of commitment to any of it. I mean, to the point where the movie has multiple jokes about like, that guy's Batman? It's just really pitiful and sad to watch as well. I had more fun watching this than the quality of it, like the objective quality of it would suggest, which is often true when we watch a movie as a group. But I think like we did a Marvel thing where we watched four of those and this is probably worse than all four. Quantumania is pretty damn close. It's, you know, neck and neck between those two. But all four of those were more boring because they were more like within the specific constraints of the Feige thing, even as Mm -hmm. everything is like collapsing to shit and doesn't have any of the steadily good qualities those have had over the years. This is just like nadir WB typical trash fire shit. But something about it is just sort of like chaotically bad. And you don't get a lot of chaotically bad superhero movie productions these days, a la this or Morbius. So there's something kind of entertaining to how goofy it is. I think what really stains it and could keep me from ever being like all right here's a two star because i laughed watching this with my friends is the degree to which it is still a fucking warner brothers corporate circle jerk like there are at least five really like glaringly placed pieces of looney tunes product placement which are meant to you know establish the cartoonish tone of this movie but are ultimately just like hey you remember six flags here's a product here's a fucking product buy a fucking product it removes any degree to which this could be seen as like 
camp or fun or Andy Muschietti kind of fucking around with it and getting a little silly because he's got things where like the flash is like eating snacks in order to keep doing stuff. It's got a tone that I think could help movies like this over something like, you know, super dire Batman versus Superman type of thing. But it's so non-committal to anything that it tries to do. And the most it commits to doing anything is being a fucking HBO Max commercial or, you know, hey, look, here's Christopher Reeves. <laughs> and then that shit just like gets into these really murky, immoral type of waters talking about Tom Cruise and the entity. The necromancy is wildly unappealing. And it's like one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. Even Michael Shannon and the gal who plays the lady Kryptonian in Man of Steel, whose name I don't remember, they both look fucking CG'd in. And I know Michael Shannon was there. Was he? I mean, (laughs) yeah, I'm not convinced. He did interviews. I'm assuming he signed (laughs) off at least. Michael Shannon's showing up looking like when Nicki Minaj has a cameo or a feature in a music video, but she doesn't want to like turn up, so she's just like on a screen or something. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Thank you. (laughs) One of the central issues, I think, of The Flash as well, it's so dire and seeing it try to squeeze charisma out of Ezra Miller, who, aside from all of their real life controversies, it's painful to watch them. There's nothing going on. It gestures towards the cheapest and dullest kinds of humor. While swinging on genuine pathos. So you basically have this adult actor playing not a high school person in their own timeline, but then they do the time travel thing and they meet the high school version of themselves. And because of this, there's just a lot of Ezra acting out being a 15-year-old. And it's like... I mean, obviously, that has a bit of a cinematic tradition, like the old teenager fucking Tobey Maguire, Peter Parker, Mm -hmm. right? Like, that's not out of the ordinary. But there's just something that is so, like, uncanny and weird about it in the context of this DCEU, which generally has avoided child characters. It's been like Gal Gadot, Henry Cavill, Ben Affleck, or all these adults. So this is like the kid among them. But it's just so weird watching this actor continue to portray things like that it reminds me of this thing somebody once told me where it's like you become famous and you stop developing right there at that point mm-hmm. and you become famous in the modern hollywood mm-hmm. so if ezra miller becomes associated with the perks of being a wallflower and playing the character of patrick that is ezra miller forever or we need to talk about mm-hmm. kevin both of which are performances where you're seeing someone play well in the case of perks it's like this sort of wise beyond their years mm-hmm. kind of mature teenage figure for sure Older than the main character, like, looks up to these characters as, like, the upperclassmen. And then in the case of Kevin, it's this kind of, like, emotionally stunted psychopath. In both cases, these core performances from Ezra Miller are, like, these unusual variants of being a teenager. You know, that's that's understating it. So, watching them try to earnestly just do, like, the peppy, goofy, naive teenager feels, like, really uncanny. ADHD as a metaphor for being a speedster superhero is something Mm. that should just go away (laughs) forever, please. Or anything like Spectrum, just get rid of that. I don't mind the representation aspect of it, but like stop making autism a superpower. Like it's a little on the nose. It's a little bit like, eh, stop. Well, I mean, it's the same thing that Big Bang Theory did for like 12 years or whatever. It literally is bazinga. We're not going to call this autism so we can get away with it if it's bad representation. Like a good doctor-ass <laughs> superhero movie. I am a speedster. 
I'm sure we'll be talking about representation later, especially with some complaints that have popped up regarding non-depictions of the Japanese. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I have many, 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 many thoughts on that. Though, like millions of other people across the world this weekend, I participated in the glorious Barbenheimer double feature, had my half gray, half pink outfit all ready to go. So I didn't have to change or anything in between. So I'll take the lead and talk about Bobby first. Mm, I have a quick question. Did you see that in a format or was that just standard? That was just standard. Gotcha. Seeing it with the people. Oh, yeah. Seeing it with people. I mean, the performance of this movie is so insane that the only reason it's capping out is because of capacity limits and it doesn't mm -hmm. have IMAX or anything. Right. You go crazy. <laughs> you keep selling out those IMAX screenings, baby. Yeah. Even though they keep fucking breaking. I will get to that later. <laughs> but anyway, so Barbie is the latest feature from director Greta Gerwig, written by her and her partner, Noah Baumbach. This is all about Barbie, whose life is plastic and fantastic. Stereotypical Barbie, who's played by Margot Robbie, lives in Barbie land with all the other Bobbies, all the Kens. And then you got poor Midge and poor Alan. You know, <laughs> no one cares for Alan. And Midge got discontinued because apparently a pregnant doll was a bad idea. But every single day is the same. It's a big old glorious disco party and a slumber party and a day at the beach. No change, no nothing. It's just perfect every single day for her, except poor, poor Ken, who's played by Ryan Gosling. His day is only good whenever Barbie acknowledges his existence. And one night during one of the big disco parties, Barbie blurts out to the crowd, do you guys ever think about dying? And then she wakes up the next day and things are getting a little weird. She's got flat feet and cellulite. So she heads off to Weird Barbie's house, played by Kate McKinnon, who is absolutely <laughs> hilarious in this. She's basically every single Barbie doll who's ever had their hair cut up or, you know, twisted and tossed around and sharpied over. And as it turns out, whoever is playing with Margot Robbie, Barbie, and the real world, their thoughts and emotional feelings are starting to infect Barbie in a sense. They are starting to become a little intertwined. So Barbie has to head out to the real world, joined in tow by Ken, who sneaks into the back of her car, and they end up in Los Angeles to go and find Barbie's owner and to stop this emotional mixing and get everything back to normal. Except the thing is, in Barbie land, there's President Barbie and Supreme Court Barbies, and basically Barbie runs the world in Barbie land. And they think that they also did this in the real world, except mm. Barbie discovers that, well, people are going to call her a fascist and also jeer at her and smack her ass. And then Ken discovers that the world is run by men, and uh, you might get a little red pilled if you want to put it that way. <laughs> Not Stormfront Ken. <laughs> 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 oh my god this was so much fun like i just cannot say enough about what a joy it was to see a big studio comedy like this mm. immaculately designed too i mean production design costume design perfect jokes a mile a minute robbie and gosling in particular are top form i think this might be my favorite gosling performance i really did enjoy the look of it there's a lot of these movies that whether intentionally or unintentionally it's quite pointed here is that they have a kind of plasticky aesthetic that they have, you know, it looks fake or it looks like a big set, artificial. That's obviously just very much the idea of Barbie Land is that it is a big pink plastic paradise. The waves are completely static. When Ken runs at them, they're just standing completely mm -hmm. still and then he bounces off of them. I love the way that they'll kind of like fly up into the air. Like it's a representation of how you would, you know, make a doll 
go from point A to point B. You don't walk them down the stairs. They just float. <laughs> the stuff that really worked for me best comedically was the, this is a little bit lofty, but I know that Greta had some ambition here in many respects. So I don't think it's inaccurate, but it's like the Tati style of humor mm-hmm. where you might see in like Mononcle where she pours herself a glass of milk in the morning. No liquid comes out. She pretends to drink an empty cup. So then when she goes to the real world and somebody hands her mineral water, she pours it all over her face and is like, I'm not used to anything being in there. The entire Mattel office was very, very playtime. The way that they're in these like completely squared off cubicles and like a gray, the executive office is like big pink Technicolor heart. He's got pink drumsticks. And then where the workers actually work is like a fucking hell office it's like completely gray (laughs) looks like brazil or something yeah windows uh morgan you caught this one i know you said in between the double oppies yeah great gowns beautiful gowns yeah um yeah (laughs) they really were actually like genuinely every outfit that margot robbie wore in this she's like she's very pretty in this movie i don't know if that's like you know because you'd be like an actress is hot or she's sexy or whatever but just like she's just pretty like you're just like wow you're pretty which also leads to the funniest line of the entire movie (laughs) yeah helen mirror narrator oh my god like i actually couldn't hear what was being said on screen for like a solid 30 seconds after that When I think of Barbie and when I think of like the relationship between Barbie as a product, Barbie as a brand over the years. Um, now I'm just sort of hyper conscious of how I'm saying Barbie. Thanks for this. It's cold. So thanks for that. Hey, you know what? Some accent fun. But when I think of that, there's a curious sort of disconnect between like the way that Mattel has over the years tried to present Barbie as this vision of womanhood, this thing that's supposed to represent a sort of ideal that based within the real world and attainable. This is the totality of what women can be, trying to kind of build that off of what was, you know, at its core, plastic and confining and restrictive and stereotypical. It's very much about consumerism and like jobs. Like, what is your job and what do you buy with your money? It seems really interesting to me that Gerwig is bringing that dynamic and sort of having fun with it. I actually found this really interesting in comparison with Little Women is that these are both adaptations of two iconic versions of what it means to be a woman you know little women being this iconic novel that people have read for more than a century and a half joe march is the girl that grows up and speaks out against barbie she's the lisa simpson type of personality Mm -hmm. and then you have barbie herself who is like the 20th century icon of womanhood closer to meg perhaps i don't have heaps to say just because i don't want to be a party pooper um It's great to see everybody enjoying this so much. I just, you know, these are all kind of jokes I've heard before. There's a musical number in this that made me like viscerally upset that this isn't a musical. Mm. It just seems so obvious once you get to that point in the movie. It's like, well, are you talking about Ken? Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Because that's so well done as well. I think that's an instance where Scorsese standby Rodrigo Prieto gets to shine. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I don't like to focus on what a movie isn't ever really, but it's a comedy and I didn't laugh very much. So I just, what are you going to do? Yeah, I had, unfortunately, and I mean, unfortunately, like, I don't like this. It wasn't something that I was sitting there like fucking grinding my axe about this movie, but it was just as the weeks went on, I just got more and more and more sour on like all the same things that I said about the flash are true here. Like uh, how thoughtful it is, how good it is, how funny it is how well acted it is, all those things, great. You know, and you can talk about them and get into them. At the end of the day, they're all built on a foundation of this is a $145 million toy commercial. 
period, point blank, that's all that it is. And that doesn't mean that it's bad. Like, I, I don't want to come off like I think that that's never a viable option for making a good film. The Lego movie directed by Lord Miller is a movie that shocked the hell out of me 10 years ago when I saw it, or I can't, I think I might've been 14, but it's, it, it's, it's also a toy commercial, like quite objectively. I think ultimately this may just boil down to taste, but like that allows for a certain visual opportunity to like flex with these animators and use the unique principles of that toy, which actually genuinely represents possibility versus this kind of inherently muddled text where we're talking about femininity, gender roles, and that schism between the idyllic nature of their toy world versus the thorny nature of the real world and trying to figure out where you fall in line with that. Like Barbie's just like a very intelligent movie, but I just don't think it ever quite escapes the actual thing that it is versus I don't think Lego movie ever tries to escape the thing that it is. It's just a celebration of what these toys are and what they can be. And it's exciting and invigorating. And that's it. It's very simple. It's fun. This is fun, but I, I just don't really find that the stabs at trying to get at anything really mean a whole lot for me. I was surprised to find myself thinking less about the Lego stuff, though, and less about maybe like Toy Story. And I found myself thinking more along the lines of Pete Docter and his two Pixar movies, Inside Out, which is my personal favorite Pixar movie, and Soul, which I also like quite a lot because of that real world imagination kind of inner world division that those have and the way that you kind of ultimately have a relationship between the two sides of the world. But I sort of felt like in this case, Barbie Land was significantly better developed than anything in the real world or any of the characters in the real world. Shouts to America Ferreira. I actually really liked her in this, but I just, her and her daughter didn't really like, it's it's too Lisa versus Malibu Stacy, which I think must be a Bombach thing. <laughs> it's so Simpsons. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. And just that final thought, it was something that Morgan kind of put into my head with his review. As Lisa versus Malibu Stacy, the one thing this really could use is a Wayland Smithers. Mm. I really think that this movie could have done a little bit more to harness the potential of men and women going out to this thing in their fucking outfits. Make it a little bit more drag race, please. Please. That would have gone a little bit further for me alongside all this gender talk would be a little bit more sexuality, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, they have a couple of jokes in there about, you know, like blobs and what they've got. And, you know, <laughs> the, like I reckon <laughs> the point when she's like rollerblading and she's like, I don't have a vagina. He doesn't have a penis. It's just like, like I so all the genitals. <laughs> <laughs> Admittedly, a little bit of this is some of the press surrounding the movie as well. But it does sound like it might be a little bit Ruth Kanda forever oh, in certain elements. <laughs> you know, a movie that I think you could certainly draw a parallel to would be Olivia Wilde's directorial debut, Booksmart, which even has a scene where those two girls are transformed into Barbies. And they represent, to me, that movie is a fucking deliriously good depiction and then inversion of that Lisa Simpson style of archetype, where it's like, I'm not like the other girls, I'm this like pick-me intellectual, but then breaking that down and going, what's really underneath that? It's kind of acidic, isn't it? It reminds me of 30 Rock. Anyway, I won't get too far afield of that, but it reminds me of the characterization of Liz Lemon, that it's like this specific type of liberal feminism that has limits. There's like ways that you can take this text and push it even further, and I, I don't really think this is got those gears to it it's a little bit more 100 level mm. and not getting past that it's thoughtful for the type of movie that it is but it's ultimately i'm with morgan i'm happy y'all had fun yeah. i really am i'm happy that it wasn't like fucking pulling teeth 
it was much more enjoyable than that. And I think that that speaks to Gerwig's acumen and her partnership with Bombach, as I think we kind of yeah. predicted. Yeah, I realized that, yeah, this is a toy commercial at the end of the day. But if all toy commercials were made with this much love and care, we would be in a much better place. And sure, like the Hot Wheels J.J. Abrams movie is going to be nowhere near this or <laughs> whatever else Mattel tries to recreate. But yeah. for the moment, this is lightning in a bottle. And I really honestly did love this. I think out of all her films so far, it is the one I will probably rewatch the most. Mm. I do think a little bit, as Morgan was saying, just a bit more of that flair, the kind of song and dance number, just keep that energy really high. Yeah, added some more Matchbox 20. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say it, if Ryan Gosling was singing to me at the beach, the Matchbox 20, I think it would work on me, honestly. And that is a failure of the movie to make Ken unappealing in any way. They did not manage that, I'll be honest. They got to cast someone uglier and less appealing. Well, I think the idea is about how the girls don't play with the Ken doll. The Ken doll sits in the toy box and the Barbie gets mm-hmm. all the playtime. And so he's just yep. over on the beach like, hey, hello, hi, hello. He's still handsome and good looking. He's like a fine doll. It's just that he, they're not interested. They don't want to play with him. Yeah. I also think there's a failure to reckon with that. Yeah. I wanted a little bit more of those real world characters, a la the inside out or a la the soul, where like that becomes more of the driving force of the film. It's kind of got that Lego movie split where the real world's. I mean, I'm glad that most of it's set in Barbie land, to be honest. Yeah. Cause I was worried about it being mostly LA. The Lego thing, it's like five to 10% of the movie, if that. You barely know that there's a real world element to those movies until you get there. Mm-hmm. Before we move on, I know we've said a lot, but I just actually want to reiterate that Kate McKinnon had me in stitches. It's like a fantastic idea. It reminds me of Angelica's little Cynthia doll from the Rugrats, if you're familiar with that show, <laughs> where it's just like <laughs> obliterated little girl's doll. There's a great physicality to that performance. Oh yeah. Why is she always doing the splits? I don't know how much she physically did, but it was fun to look at. Mm -hmm. I want to talk briefly before I hand the mic over to Riley about a movie that I happened to catch on the same day that I watched Oppenheimer as part of the Disney 100th anniversary screenings that they're doing. They were doing Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl a couple weeks ago. And on Friday, I went and saw the 1995 inaugural Pixar narrative feature Toy Story directed by John Lasseter, written by Joss Whedon, literally just all of the problematic people. Uh, what a fucking classic. People nowadays, they look back on Toy Story because of the insane technological advancement of the past two and a half decades in the realm of computer-generated animation. But man, scripts don't get better than that. Characters don't get better than that. Children's movies don't get better than that. I don't even think the look gets much better than that because of the type of stuff like the McKinnon weird Barbie physicality. That first Toy Story movie, because of the limitations that they're facing, they focus so tightly on the types of textures and shapes that they can make. And they focus on perspective and movement so that when the army guys move, they move like, you know, like little tap, 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 tap. Or you get all these different like POV perspective type shots that really ingrain you in what it is like to be a little fragile piece of plastic in a big human world where the dog becomes a fucking demon and just i don't have a whole lot to say about it i think we're actually going to probably do a pixar episode like we did our disney episode once we get into the winter of this year so more thoughts to be shared then but like just something about it just some joy that comes over me watching that movie and i just thought it was kind of fun because it happened to coincide with the release of barbie so it felt like i got to do my own oppenheimer guys and dolls (laughs) double feature do you know if they're doing any of those others cole besides the two that i just mentioned pirates and that 
I mean, it's like all stuff from within the last 30 years. So that's where the excitement kind of drops out for me. Yeah. It's like Lion King, Beauty and the Beast. I think Frozen, Moana. It's like yeah. show Bambi. Fantasia, something. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, we both saw Fantasia theatrically, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do it again. But yeah, this was one of the best things that they could have thrown out for me, for me personally, because it's just serious. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I think it's just kind of a watermark in animation. Like there have been other Western animated movies since that that I like as much, maybe even a little more, but it just, it's all of the powers of a studio coming together in this one perfect package, this perfect shot across the bow that opens up one of the great eras of any studio ever in history that lasts about 15 years, just about, of just fucking stone-cold hitters. So yeah, I look forward to talking about that on a little bit of a deeper level in the future. Riley, how about you? Yes, well, one thing I'll mention very quickly, I did get to catch up on the new Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, with all the punctuation. I think that it brushes up against some of the limitations of dividing a movie like this up into two parts, Mm -hmm. but I think that it does a lot of really smart things thematically. I think that it advances the series cultural relevance in some really, really sharp ways with some of its core conceits while at the same time delivering basically everything you would want from a classic Mission Impossible picture. High quality caper stuff, lots of really, really good gags, lots of great characterization and camaraderie and all those sorts of things. And of course, the big action set pieces are peerless. So I don't have any, you know, neat, interesting slanted take to deliver on Dead Reckoning Part 1. I had a great time. Not as good as Fallout, as I'm sure everyone will tell you. That was just kind of a high watermark for the series. But still, lots of really great stuff. Most interesting thing I saw recently, though, and I happened to catch this because there was a screening going on. We're moving far afield here. We're talking about a lot of current and relevant stuff, whereas I'm going back to 1960s Japanese cinema with the legendary Shohei Imamura's film Pigs and Battleships, which is a very gritty, hyper-realist slice of life with flashes of Western arch influence as well. It is a story of a young Yakuza wannabe who a black market hustler, specifically in the pork meat trade, and his escapades and adventures as he tries to dig his connections deeper within the Yakuza and find more stability in his life while pursuing a romance with Haruko, his girlfriend who works as a bartender, barmaid, and also part-time cool girl as well. And it's a very uh, brutal story in a lot of ways. One of the things that's most interesting about Imamura as a filmmaker is that he is the protege of one Mr. Yasujiro Ozu, who, if you watch Imamura's films, you might be surprised to learn that because there is a world of difference between the sort of pillowy, sort of somewhat comfortable, light middle-class drama you're always in these like family dynamics that are very similar with ozu and he's kind of like here's the dynamic at this time here's the dynamic at this time here's the dynamic at this time whereas with imamura particularly in this film the setup is that we are on this shore town it's on a wharf it is after the end of world war ii Mm. so we're firmly in the post-war era and we are just a little ways off of a united states naval base And this entire wharf has been built up as kind of 
it seemed to me like a little bit of like a Vegas kind yeah. of thing. Like it was like a vacation tourist trap getaway for yeah. these visiting sailors who are docked. And then what it's like for these people, the locals living within that new economic context. Mm. Yeah, Imamura very keen to kind of strike out on his own path from his protege, the director like Ozu. The dramatic heft comes from, you know, the realization of a parent that maybe they can't relate to their child as much as they could anymore compared to Imamura's dramatic heft coming from the violence of prostitution in this context and the horrible situations that young men are put into as well when they need to conform in some way in order to survive. Where we're talking some pretty some pretty brutal stuff stuff here as well. And I think one of the things that was most startling about it for the audience I saw it with as well was how acerbic and violent the formalism of this movie is as well. Like Imamura is particularly at this point in the career, he's you know he's got something to prove. He's hungry. He's got a visceral feeling inside of him and he wants to express it. And so the movie doesn't hold back. I mean there's some stuff in this movie that is very difficult and I could sense in the room how much people were struggling with some of the places that this movie goes to. But also at the same time, it's a relentlessly gripping drama, beautiful performances. Like you say, Zach, a film that really constructs a location that's rich with a sense of immediate history, fraught with the presence and sustained impact of the American military, and specifically these sailors who have, by their presence and by their demands, essentially kind of created a market where, you know, it is kind of this madcap Vegas place these sailors storm off their boats and have their way with all the women and have all the food they want. Literally, men are killing each other and killing themselves over scraps mm. for their Navy base. And I think it's a really good primer for the Oppenheimer discussion, because this is the political context that Oppenheimer and you know the entire Pacific theater the American military created. It's not just like some hypothetical thing. I mean, if that war had ended in another way, you know, maybe this is Soviets at this base instead of Americans, but it's not. It's Americans. Like this context was created by those forces of history. As I watched it, it reminded me a considerable amount of a very underseen movie called The Skin by Liliana Cavani, which is about the American allied liberation of Italy, where they basically just kind of went north, 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 north through that country. And it explores what it was like in these provincial towns as the Americans pushed out the fascists and then were their own type of violent occupying force. Mm. One of the things that I think Imamura is really known for, the first movie I ever saw by him was called The Insect Woman, which is in Japanese, I believe it's called something closer to like Entomological Chronicle of Japan. And that's just who he is as a director to me at this point, where yeah. he's just incredible at giving you a vivisection of a time and a place and a culture. All mm. movies from Japan or made in Japan give you a portrait of that country. And so collectively, you can start to get a pretty damn good idea of what it's like. But mm. his movies, you're just fucking right there, just looking right into that world about as fully as you could be. Pigs and Battleships is the only Imamura I've seen, but one thing that I've become conscious of from this film is that he likes to draw these parallels between humans and animals and creatures without being glib, kind of overly simplistic, you know, like we're all savages, we all have the same underlying base urges, although that is a kind of part of it, but that Imamura sees a kind of communion in 
basic desires and instincts between human beings and animals. And, you know, he makes that fairly explicit here with the presence of pigs. One of the central narrative aspects of the film is the pork market, this trafficking in meat specifically. And it's paralleled, you know, if inelegantly, then still pointedly by the trafficking of human beings through the way that the brothels operate in this film as well. Highly recommend it and definitely has me wanting to dig deeper into his work. It's a great little transition point that I will use to talk about what I've been watching lately. So I've got a fairly long list. I'll try to keep everything nice and tight. This all kind of started off for me for three reasons, I guess. The first and most obvious one is the one that we're all here to talk about today. That's Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Second is also Christopher Nolan because I got to see Dunkirk in theaters, but we'll talk about that in just a second. But that was his big World War II movie. And it just kind of got me in that mindset of like wanting to watch things about this topic or related to this topic. Oppenheimer's quite specifically about one person. It's adapted from one book, but the Pacific theater that really defined August 6th, the actual dropping of the bomb, extensive. Goes all the way back into the 1930s and the Sino-Chinese War and all that different type of stuff. And there's a lot a lot of amazing movies, particularly from Japan, but really from all over East Asia and all over the world about that period in history. And I watched a lot of them. The third thing that really kicked this off is a movie that was not set in the post-war period or during the war, though, but much earlier than that. And that is Masaki Kobayashi's Harakiri, the number one film on letterbox.com. I know, Morgan, you saw that and you loved the shit out of it. You were kind of like... You know, no one had to tell me to watch Harakiri. I hadn't done it before. No one really had to convince me. But I think when you watched it, that was sort of the first moment where I was like, all right, I got to fucking nut up and take this off my list here. Uh, I watched it on a, <laughs> I got my former roommate, the criterion of it for Christmas a couple of years ago now. And we watched it on the disc that I got him. And I only just bought it for myself on this recent Criterion sale. So it's a movie I bought twice, but I still haven't seen my copy of it. And I definitely need to get around to that before it makes an inevitable dent on my top 50, maybe top 25 of all time. Completely, utterly breathtaking, structural, formal performance bit of wizardry that like, it's hard to talk about because it felt so all-encompassing and it still does. It's rare having seen as many movies as I have and watching them with as much frequency as I do that when I was watching it, I wasn't thinking about the next part of it or what that might be. I was just completely along for the ride. Even movies that I absolutely love, I still do that with. And it's just rare to be so involved in something. You know, based on its reputation, I was surprised to find that it was much more Rashomon than Seven Samurai. Yeah. Like just the fact that it's so universal and like rated so highly just made me think like, okay, here comes Tetsuya Nakadai. He's going to do some sword fighting, cool action guy shit. And it's like, no, it's kind of like a court. It's kind of like testimony. Here's my testimony. Here's your testimony. Here's this testimony. That connects to Oppenheimer in some ways. The main thrust of it into all the movies that I was watching, however, was partially related to Masaki Kobayashi. We'll come back to that. And because it is such a clear synecdoche, for the post-war period after the Pacific War in the 1940s and 50s, because it's about this samurai domain that falls apart during peacetime and what all their characters are sort of dealing with. But then ultimately coming to this unique conclusion that even though the post-war period thrusts all these people into poverty, it's better than war. Like, the peace is better than war. 
And it was just such a clear statement to me by Kobayashi that it made me want to watch, well, as I said, I'll get to that. I did watch another Kobayashi film called The Thick Walled Room, which is a much earlier picture by him. It's from the 1950s, but he still was not in any way afraid of controversy. This is a movie about Japanese prisoners after the war, mostly enlisted men in a United States-run work camp that they are in there for committing various crimes, killing civilians, doing you know all sorts of awful things. And it explores their pasts and the culpability of the officers and the leadership of Japan who largely got off scot-free while these lower level guys are the ones that got all the punishment. Think Paul Schrader's The Card Counter, but relating to the Japanese in World War II. That's basically what you've got going on there. I've got two, two movies one of which I had seen before, the other of which I hadn't, that were inspired by my Dunkirk rewatch. Because when I rewatched Dunkirk, I found myself thinking, is this my favorite English war movie ever? Or my favorite English World War II movie, at the very least? The UK, obviously, a very central part in that conflict, including in the Pacific theater. And as I was saying this, it dawned on me. I was like, I've never seen David Lean's The Bridge on the River Kwai. I've never seen it. And that's probably got to be the most storied English World War II movie of all time. Easily. Yeah. Yes. You're a David Lean freak. You're like, it's a oh, late yeah. night. During the River Kwai. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. Alec Guinness. One of my favorite performances in the English language. Just the perfect Englishman performance. Kind of crazy to watch this for the first time this deep into my life of watching movies and realize that it basically has influenced everything, including like mm-hmm. War for the Planet of the Apes, for instance, like that Caesar Harrison yeah. dynamic. There. Honestly, like, that is yeah. just that's the same thing. Really great inspection of the British culture, you know, the soldiers who are prisoners of war over there in Japanese, I believe it's in Japanese occupied China is where that Burma. movie is set. Burma. And they're whistling and marching in formation under this fucking blazing hot sun. It's that stiff upper lip, but it's meeting the unbending will of fascist Japan and their military machine. And it's the psychology of like this guy versus this guy pit against each other. Great movie. Fuck. I mean, classic. Riley, you're, I know. Yeah, I think I watched this and you were like, that's just a banger. <laughs> like, I mean, you won't have any dissenting opinions from me on the greatness of River Kwai. It's astonishing. I don't know if I have any special threads to add. The two things that jump out to me, one of them would be a connection to Harakiri, the titular word, because of how it mm. ends. There's a plunger, and where it lands on the body, you're like, I... Oh, that doesn't sound like that should go oh. there. And then the other one is to Oppenheimer. It's about building your career, and the career is up in smoke. You know, you put all of your work and all of your power and all of your skills into crafting something that feels meaningful, that is the byproduct of immense human collaboration. Mm. And then it's rubble. There's this disconnect between the creative possibility of human ingenuity. Mm -hmm. Next to filmmaking, quite inherently and innately, I think. Yeah. And how that, you know, wondrous possibility, constantly new frontiering, how that is then contextualized in wartime. I also rewatched what I think is Cole's favorite American World War II movie, The Thin Red Line. Yeah, just about depending on your definition. Yeah. You know, if Casablanca counts, then you know <laughs> that's different. But boots on the ground, soldiers marching in, guns firing, bombs going off. Sir, yes, sir. That type of World War II movie, I think. 
then this is it. Yeah. I've seen this a few times, although probably not last since I was in high school. It's got this very like Herzog kind of vibe where mm-hmm. you're just out there in the South Pacific movie set in the it's in Guadalcanal is where it's set. And so, so much of it is like, here's these shots of nature and animals and plants and the sea and natives. And then juxtaposing that with the massive human endeavor of trying to get all these soldiers and march them up a hill right into the teeth of the enemy. Pretty classic stuff. I think this one was really interesting to me because it's just what we were just saying. It's because it ends up becoming this metaphor for filmmaking to me, like how these people come together. I, you know, I think you can kind of see like Travolta as the producer, Nolte as the director, all the younger officers as like the department heads, that kind of thing. And I don't know, just makes nice little parallels with Oppenheimer along the way. Uh, from there, I actually pivoted into Japan. There's kind of two more pointed and darker films that start to get into the heaviness a little bit. One of them was Kon Ichikawa's Fires on the Plane, which is adapted from one of the most famous Japanese post-war novels. It's about Japanese soldiers who are stranded in the Philippines after that area is invaded and taken over by the Americans, who are either left behind by their army, forced into committing suicide attacks, basically, that are entirely in vain. Or, in the case of the main character, he gets kicked out early because he has tuberculosis. And so he just kind of wanders around this island, starving to death, examining the fallout of the war and the desperation of that moment and how each party, the natives, the invading Americans, and the Japanese, will just kill these people. Basically plays out as like they're scrounging for yams, they're eating grass, and eventually he links up with a couple of people who have a stash of tobacco and monkey meat. And where that goes, I won't reveal, but it, um, it gets quite intense. It gets quite dark in a way that I think war movies made outside of the West have a little bit of a better handle on than maybe some things that you would see from America or the UK. Finally, I'll wrap it back around to our guy Shohei Imamura, a film that was directly, directly, directly connected to Oppenheimer, perhaps more directly than anything else that I've watched, which is called Black Rain. Black Rain is a movie that looks and feels older than Pigs and Battleships, which is a 60s movie. Even though Black Rain was released in, I think it was the 80s. Yeah, 1989, because we talked about the Black Rain double feature you can have. <laughs> Ridley, with Scott. The Ridley Scott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Black Rain is about the bombing of Hiroshima and specifically focuses on a family of three survivors of the blast, as well as a couple of others who relocate to this small community that we see five, ten years after the bomb goes off. It opens, and you see that damn mushroom cloud, And then eventually, even though most of the film is set in a somewhat Ozu-like drama relating to this family, we do see flashbacks to it that are sort of based on characters reconstructing from their diaries. Because what they're trying to combat is a certain social stigma from having been there at the blast and what that means for the health, particularly of a young woman character who was coded in literally the black rain of the fallout of the nuclear bomb and her attempts to get married again the ozu thing because either the prospective suitors or their families keep rejecting the pairings based on her health so what we look at through this movie is an examination of this horrible terrifying episode through the lens of memory and reconstruction and we look at the lingering effects of that bomb that go far beyond the explosion and the impact 
far beyond the radiation destroying these people's bodies and into how it destroys them psychologically and socially. And we see other impacts of the war on other characters. And as we've already talked about with Imamura, it's such a detailed lens into Japan that you feel like you are right there with them every step of the way, whether they're in their daily lives or literally walking through the rubble of a destroyed city. And it is, I mean... (laughs) It, it is what it sounds like it is. It was a great movie. I was fucking shook afterwards because of how intense it got. I highly recommend it. It's another underseen movie, obviously. Approach with your most, you know, <laughs> emotional resolve that you can muster. So that was pretty much my run up to this movie. As you can maybe tell, I was really like just fucking jazzed to get into Oppenheimer so much so that I was just anything and everything that could help deepen it and contextualize it, I was wanting to get my hands on. And that maybe includes the films of Christopher Nolan himself, particularly in this later part of his career, starting in the 2010s, when he begins collaborating with a new cinematographer, Hoyt van Hoytema, the Dutch-Swedish cinematographer of Let the Right One In, and Her, and, you know, eventually movies like Jordan Peele's Nope. He has become, like, the de facto Nolan guy in this era. And it has coincided with an interesting development where Nolan has just gone fully to the IMAX stars. So yeah, nine years ago, first post-Bat trilogy Nolan picture. I think it would be fair to say that expectations for Nolan were never really higher than they were in the build-up to Interstellar. Inception had a really big spotlight, but I think that we were also mystified by what it was going to be it was right after his big hit in the dark night and it just felt like this inevitable Mm. smash it never felt like a risk it just seemed like okay yeah this is what he's doing now versus interstellar was like you're absolutely right it just had this huge stage and felt unknown in many ways yeah i remember seeing that poster where it's the title of the film in a column and Mm. coming off the farmhouse yeah mcconaughey and foyer on the bottom of it looking up and it just immediately it capturing my imagination. And then I saw it and I didn't care for it. <laughs> I was 14 years old and I had the most 14 year old ass opinion. I liked all the parts that were like sciencey, but I don't understand what this love shit has to do with anything. <laughs> and I came back to it four years later. Feels like it was much longer than that. It's five years ago now. And that time, time is, yeah. Yeah. Time is the mm-hmm. enemy. And completely and utterly fell in love with it during my very first semester at college. An instrumental film in discovering that was one I wanted to study. I dropped out of my current program, moved back home, enrolled in the film program at Community College. That film and a number of other cherished films, they were all rolled up into that era of self-discovery. It really can't be overstated just how much I think a technical achievement this is first collaboration with Hoytema. And I mean, it's just like the most IMAX movie of all time. It's possible that no working cinematographer captures space better than Hoytema at this stage to me. Mm -hmm. Like there's just a way that everything is lit that feels real. It's like simultaneously vast and gritty. Yeah. Tangibly, like you are human beings in this environment, but also the environment itself in its very nature is intangible. It is a vacuum Mm. and you are a finite thing in that space. You look at the face of a spaceship 
it'll have a little bevel on it. That bevel will cast a shadow along the side of it. And that shadow is the size of the street that you live on, on planet Earth. And that's kind of what you're getting out of these images to me. Mm -hmm. It reminds, obviously, like, rote comparison to 2001 A Space Odyssey, but it reminds of how those images were captured in a time when we don't really have to rely so much on models. And we can make the illusion of it feel even bigger and more immediate. As the start of a new era for Nolan, particularly with the whole IMAX, this is where it becomes the IMAX freak. Mm -hmm. I think my big issue with this movie is just a little too bloated. And for personal taste, I just don't like Zimmer's score in this at all. I think it's just way too gloppy. Like, way too sweet. So I knew that that was your take. On this score. absolutely rancid take <laughs> i went to see this in theaters it was the second one that i saw theatrically uh-huh. i was really excited for it i've always been really agnostic on this movie it's just not my brand of pathos it's still not it's never going to be at all mm-hmm. the score for me is the movie the score is the better version of the movie's core idea it does get really goopy emotionally these songs but for like 80 percent of it it is titanic scale ominous universal destruction and like these giant organs that feel like they're gonna swallow you whole and then it's these little bits and notes of warmth that represent survival amid this inhospitable universe. It's like the beauty of the human miracle, basically. And to me in the movie, there's like always this tension between how rigidly scientific a lot of it is and then how like just quite sappy it gets, which is part of the magic of it, I understand. But to me in music, that really comes across quite well emotionally and has always felt really coherent for me. I really think that most of the score is actually quite terrifying as opposed to sentimental the genius of the score i think specifically that you know most overt obvious decision to focus so much of it around the organ as opposed to the traditional string orchestra the decision to make the focal point the organ which is you know Mm. far from a typical presence in this kind of large-scale film score production it works on multiple levels i mean first of all you're taking something that because it's not a staple of that style of composing it sticks out it feels more tangible it feels more human for lack of a better word than what you would typically have with just your grand big strings also there's the evocation within the organ tones of the musical melody of the aliens in close encounters of the third kind but particularly i mean it's already been mentioned it can't be overstated how much this movie owes to 2001 a space odyssey i know it's like every space movie ever since owes to that but like this movie is like explicitly This one especially wants to be 2001 so bad. To the point where it's largely borrowing, if definitely twisting, certain narrative beats. Ultimately, they're not very much alike, is kind of the sneak thing. Formally, yes. And in many ways, like, to me, this movie is about that phone call that you make on the moon base in 2001, where the guy calls his daughter on the phone. This is that represented as a film. That's the movie versus like 2001 A Space Odyssey. No Kubrick movie is even one one hundredth as sentimental as Interstellar. And here's the thing. 
it's still a really important reference point because mm-hmm. in a large part, if you ask Nolan about his influences, Kubrick is usually more often than not the first name that he brings up. And I think a core aspect of this movie is Nolan recognizing and paying tribute to how profoundly influential that film was on him, but also reconciling that influence with his very distinct philosophy from Kubrick. Totally. Yes. My thoughts on Interstellar. I saw it when it was released in 2014 as a huge fan of Nolan, as every teenage boy, you know, teenagers who are mildly nerdy and and into films and whatever, (laughs) all over Nolan. I was uh, 17 when Interstellar came out. And my relationship with Nolan was steadfast up until that point. The cliches are all there, becoming a little bit more jaded. And a byproduct of that often tends to be that you kind of look back at the artists you love during that time and you start to think, was my love for this person so influenced by all of these really, really cringy parts of myself that I now want to distance myself from because I'm embarrassed by them? And then when you're in your mid-20s, you look back on that whole quandary and you're like, oh God, I was so self-indulgent. Anyway. I bring this up because the most viewed and the most consumed thing I have contributed to the entire planet in my lifetime is a review of a Christopher Nolan film. Not this one, a one that we're going to get to in a bit. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that was a byproduct of that review was me realizing for the first time ever, there are people on the internet who I don't know, who read the things I say, who track the things I say over time, and who are prepared to use the things I say against me to score points. And mm. this happened in the fallout of my tenant review because someone in the comments said, what happened to you? You used to love Nolan. You gave Interstellar five stars when it came out. You logged it on Letterboxd the weekend it came out now i look at it and you've got it at a 3.5 what happened to you when did you decide to become a cool film twitter person and when did you decide to turn your back on nolan because he wasn't cool anymore you should be so ashamed we must destroy parasocial relationships yeah again person i (laughs) never spoken to in my life insane i bring this up to make a particular point which is that it is natural and fine and good and healthy for your relationships with and your feelings towards the work of a particular artist to change as you age. Yes. This director is very emblematic of that for me, where it's gone down and up and every which way. That line of thought is so poisonous. It is deeply dangerous to never change your mind. Like, (laughs) terrifying. Mm -hmm. Morgan opened by saying you didn't like this film, and then it became your favorite Nolan film. When Interstellar came out, I thought this was one of the most incredible films I'd ever seen. Contrary to some of you, I was completely fully in it, in the bag, all the way from opening weekend. And then I kind of got a little bit away from that, and I was like, okay, I've maybe kind of built this up a little bit. I don't want to be glib about this, and I don't want to say that this was the reason, but looking for a historical context and trying to pass this narrative in Nolan's career, it's hard not to look back and think about the after effects of the terrible shooting in Aurora during the screening of The Dark Knight Rises in 2012, and how it's one thing that comes to mind when I think about how much more existentially preoccupied his films have become from Interstellar and ever since. This preponderance of existential concern seems to have become one of the biggest elements of Nolan's style and one of the biggest elements of what his films do ever since. And the core of what Nolan does, the core of who Nolan is as recognized through these films, is this dichotomy between two things. One is the wonder and endless possibility of human creativity and human individual achievement, individual and collective as well, but also how that works on the individual level, what one person can do to 
take their sense of awe and wonder at the world and realize that into a kind of achievement that advances. Butting up against the inherent limitations of a single human being as well, the impermanence of a human life, a sense that we are only here for a very particular period of time and that's it. And most poignantly, what happens when the endless possibility, the awe, the creative potential of human beings that seems so boundless is not enough to save them. And that core concern is at the heart of all of Nolan's most compelling work, I think, in this particular period, most explicitly in Interstellar and Oppenheimer. Interstellar, the world is under threat from an incoming environmental apocalypse, and that central narrative thrust of the film is we're looking for a new world. You're situated with Matthew McConaughey's central character, and particularly his relationship with his daughter as well, and they're both two people who are totally swept up in their awe and love They speak a unique language that almost none of the other characters in the movie speak. Mm. Even if they're heavily involved in the same questions, there's just a way that these two exchange ideas in their unique way Mm. of thinking about things. And I think so much of it is about not just that they each are different than other people, but the way that they're similar to each other, the bond that they can form. And to me, it was like the thing that I kind of came away thinking watching this movie, particularly as someone who's always been a little agnostic to it. There's just this message about how a message needs a receiver. What you say and what you mean and what you feel to transmit it to someone, they have to be receptive to it. They have to be tuned to your frequency. My favorite single scene in this is the docking scene that happens after Matt Damon fucking blows the airlock and the thing's quite rapidly spinning out of control. First of all, it takes me right back to the Hoytema where you can literally see the physical nature of what's happening based exclusively on light and shadow and movement. So it's just a beautiful use of the technique. But what's happening is that McConaughey is having to spin his shuttle to match up with the Endurance space station. And he's having to spin it at the exact same rate. And only once they're spinning identically can he dock. And that's the message. You can't just click, click, and we're done. You have to be spinning at the same rate in order to make the connection. The reason why that scene sticks out to me so much is because it is everything that Nolan can do beautifully. He doesn't have to say a word. All you need is the visual, and it's thrilling. It's a thrilling set piece that is also this extended emotional metaphor. To me, he is at his absolute apex making a scene like that versus probably the most controversial and dug on scene of this movie is when Anne Hathaway's like love is a tangible force and all that type of stuff and she's giving kind of like a speech about that and mm-hmm. the set piece stuff the tension is what is really delivering the message for me that scale and the fear I don't think this is necessarily greatly communicated by the script but I think the genius of the movie is in the absolutely galling scene where Hathaway says that they should go to uh Edmund's Edmund's planet. planet. Because what she's saying is ridiculous within the framework of what they're doing, what they're looking for, what they're on this mission for. Maybe who these people are. Yeah. Mm. But she is also correct. Mm. Because why is anyone out there in the first place if it's not to save their children or to save those that they love? There's a reason why the countdown is the truck. 
pulling away from the farm yeah. and you don't really see them on the rocket and all that build up the way a movie might traditionally give you. And it does the Solaris thing mm -hmm. where it, it's the human. It's what you're leaving behind. The heart of the movie is that both of those people in that argument are correct. The movie looks at it more optimistically, but I sort of think it's why we might be doomed is that we're never going to be able to reconcile these two things. Mm -hmm. That two people can be coming from totally honest, thoughtful places, not trying to hurt anyone. And that some other guy's just out there trying to survive. Yeah. It is also a top three Matt Damon turn. For the I record. think Oppenheimer might also be top three for him, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I like that Interstellar turns him from someone needing to be saved into being a pathetic little coward. Yeah. One of my favorite bits is... He's departed as... <laughs> I do love how Weasley he gets, you know, as his uh -huh. heel turn plays out. I can't look. I thought I oh, could, but God. I couldn't. Beautifully pitched. Uh, watching that scene again in theaters was a moment where I knew that Oppenheimer would satisfy me. Because you have a guy who's like this reticent, uh, but he's doing the wrong thing, knows that he's doing the wrong thing and isn't going to stop. And that's mm -hmm. so many different characters in Oppenheimer are just that level of weasel. Yeah. They want yeah. you to, it's like, oh, this hurts me more than it hurts you, blows up the other guy. It's <laughs> like, I can't breathe and you can. <laughs> yeah. Cool movie. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm a bigger gravity guy. I know Cole is too. No question. There is no part of me that understands this. <laughs> but, you know, respect. I, I get it. Let I me see it. if I can try to close the gap a little, because it's not a huge gap for me. It's not like... For me, it's a big freaking gap. Here's what it is. Here's what it is. In gravity, everything is pared down to just be the docking scene. Mm -hmm. It's because everything is that immediacy. All of it is just about being in that moment with that character. One of my least favorite Nolan things, and it literally plagues every movie of his until Oppenheimer, I think, actually, is this shit where he like, we're cutting back to Topher Grace, who's in the truck and Casey Affleck's coming up the road. And we cut back to that like eight times. It's like, this is not tense, dude. This has nothing to do with what makes this movie interesting or good. It's mm -hmm. this Topher Grace scene. And he does that in every movie, including my favorites. It's just a tendency of his I dislike. Gravity keeps everything up in the air. And then I think ultimately it has a much smaller sense of portent. Whatever the sense of the mission of that movie was, is annihilated the minute that they all get wiped out in the first five minutes. Mm -hmm. And from there, it is a purely survival narrative. To me, the most compelling aspect of Interstellar is the survival narrative. I understand, obviously, it's got like these bigger aspirations with respect to the ecological themes and the optimism of the movie and everything. But it always pushes against my sensibilities that it is not a movie that says survival is more important than the mission or the mission is more important than survival, one of the two, because it really ultimately tries to have its cake and eat it too. It's the survival story about this guy, Cooper, but then also like they save the world. And it's, eh, eh, doesn't really work for me. But the bigger thing to kind of come away with was that when I saw this, it was like versus that 80 to 90 minute movie, this was like a three hour movie that had everything that Gravity did, but like bigger and more tenacious vis-a-vis -vis the docking sequence, vis-a-vis -vis floating out past Saturn and shit like that. But then it has all this other stuff going on to it, too, that just kind of bloats. Just gets it into this realm of pathos that isn't my flavor, and I don't believe it's Nolan's either. One of the things that I read on The Road to Oppenheimer was a tweet that someone was talking about how in India, Nolan is loved. Huge director over there, like beloved. I think the joke that they made was Oppenheimer's a three-hour movie, confirming finally that Nolan is an Indian filmmaker, was what they said. And they were positing that that audience 
is receptive to Nolan's particular and I would say somewhat strange brand of sentimentalism. And this person was also expressing confusion, maybe a little bit of disdain at Westerners like me, who constantly described Nolan as cold. And he was calling Nolan's style operatic, which I think must relate pretty directly to Interstellar because it's the one that's kind of got like the biggest, most grandiose emotional scale. But I don't like that term for him. I don't think that's right. I don't even think it's right for Interstellar because Interstellar is not an opera. It's not. Not even the score is operatic, really. Nope. It's much more precision oriented. And if anything, I think sometimes the interstellar elements that get me away from the precision start to rankle with that sensibility just a little bit, or it feels like it's got two voices, maybe because it is his last collaboration with his brother, Jonathan, on the screenplay there. But the more I got to thinking about this person's comparison of Nolan is operatic, the less I liked it because he's just not colorful. He's not got that same sense of theatricality, but there is something there. And it's because his movies are very musical. As Riley has already said, they're all about time. They're about syncope. They're about making these pieces come together. And I started thinking of him as a symphonic director, as a maestro, as a conductor, as Lydia Tarr, up at the podium with his little stick, and the right hand slamming down, pushing you forward through time. The left hand sculpting the dynamics, bringing these elements of the story together. So we've got the part of Interstellar that's on Earth, the part of Interstellar that's on space, the part of Interstellar that's in the past, the part of Interstellar that's in the future. And he's bringing them all together through this edit and conducting it like music. Nowhere in his entire filmography has this been better or more completely explored than in what was my favorite Nolan film, Dunkirk. 2017, this follow-up film to Interstellar, a movie that took what, in my opinion, is the sensibility of gravity that I wish Interstellar had a little bit more, and it goes full throttle in that direction, further than gravity even takes me personally, because that movie opens up and you're in the silence. You have one title card and one quick image of the Germans via pamphlet telling the English, we're pushing you out of France. We have you surrounded. And there's a brief moment of calm and then Zimmer's score kicks in. Tick, 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 tick. The fucking rifles start going off. They sound like they're right inside your ear hole, like a fucking cannon being blasted off inside your bedroom. And from there, he orchestrates the three phases of the battle, the land, the air, and the sea into something that is just breathless, nonstop. A hundred minutes of pure fucking horror. But also with this like specifically English flair of the period and production details and the spirit of this, which is like the British being kicked out of France, but ultimately the civilians coming to save everyone, having this inspiring, we will endure, you know, we will never surrender Churchill kind of spirit to it that rarely works for me in a war movie, but works perfectly here given the intense level of immersion and emotion that is brought not through pathos, but through excitement. To me, this is Nolan at his most Vivaldi. He's not trying to give you this score swell that reaches inside of your heart and moves you. He's trying to make you fucking get up. He's trying to get your heart rate accelerated. He's trying to get you leaned forward in your chair. And from that position, you get to appreciate the delicacy of Rylance, Brynog, Murphy, all these different performances. And to me, this is just like a little mini masterpiece. This is just a fucking amazing movie. It's the first Nolan movie that ever truly 
felt like he was putting the pieces of his sensibility together in a way that almost no one else could. Mm. It feels like the opening D-Day sequence of Saving Private Ryan, but for the duration of a film, without ever relenting. I like you tying it into the things that gravity does that make Mm. it more moment-to-moment immersive. Gravity and Dunkirk are both environmental narratives. Mm -hmm. They work insofar as they are able to immerse you as much in the environment and the feel of it and the sensory tangibility of it. You can't get boats off the shore because the waves are too bad. You can't get them off the mole because you're a sitting duck. The battleships are too far away. The fuel level is too low for the planes to get here. Mm -hmm. Every element of that spatially and in terms of their resources is just immediate and articulated with almost no effort. That's a very particular goal that the film has, that few films really go for, that level of moment to moment just inside of it, putting you into a kind of first-person perspective in a certain sense. You're feeling the sand and the water lapping against your boots, and you're feeling all the artillery, and you're hearing the booming and the banging certainly a different goal and a different kind of realization of some of his core ideas, again, of human vulnerability, the crushing reality of the limits of being a single person, being kind of pushed into an existential crisis. It is as immersive and involving of a realization of those ideas as anything that he's done, rougher and uglier and darker than anything he's done before, which is uniquely well pitched to the material at hand. I think that's also true of Mm. the character anonymity. One of my bigger issues with something like Inception, for instance, is that that movie's got a bunch of great actors playing exposition robots. They are not people. They are not dimensional characters. We're going to get into that a little more on his next movie. Dunkirk is arguably this way as well. I think that there's some nice characterization for like Rylance and his son, but like Murphy, who I think gives a great performance in this, is playing a concept for sure, like of this dude who's so haunted by what he's seen that he just becomes psychologically racked and unable to think of anything but to survive and panic. But the text, the material allows for a situation where that anonymity is powerful. Because all of these people are meat standing on the sand. Your life is the difference between a bomb hitting five feet this way or a bullet going five feet that way. And that's it. Survival is that immediate. And I think it really, really works for this. And it's such a well-cast movie because apart from Harry Styles, which is a pretty big blunder, most of the people that you recognize represent Rylance as the older civilian, Branagh as the naval commander. And then otherwise it's like, quite unknown anonymous people like they just look like the faces of soldiers it's a good mix of celebrities that you can recognize and immediately grab onto and i think even styles is decent in that regard considering he is just fighting to survive Mm -hmm. alongside this cast of people you never know they need to look as british as possible right (laughs) right it's really good casting because the more english they look the more you feel the reality of it the not hollywoodness of it i like the performances in this, I like styles in it until we get to that scene where they're in the boat and they accuse the Frenchman of being a German spy because I think that scene blows. I mean, for one, you already have them shooting at them. That's right. tense enough. You do not need this miniature paranoid spy drama thing. And we're already so intermixed with that unit because what's happened is they've run into these Scottish soldiers and they're in this Dutch boat. So mm-hmm. it's like, 
you are all already clearly in a survival situation. What the fuck do you care, bro? All you're trying to do is get off this fucking beach alive. If they're shooting at all of you, they're going to shoot him too. So right. <laughs> that's the only point in this movie where I think mm-hmm. that didn't happen. It is the weakest point of the movie for me too. Less even because of the scene, but it's more back on that Topher Grace truck thing because yeah. it is being intercut with this airplane spectacle shit that is rad because it's when the blonde guy goes down and he's having to fucking punch out the top of his plane and everything and nolan loves to do this shit where he makes the movie race itself which in dunkirk is like the entire thing is that you're click 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 through these three different phases but in that movie you're pitting two things against each other of vastly different complexity and that's what makes it not work so much it really calls to mind the van thing in inception for me except in this case it's the complicated part that i like less than the simple part Mm. in general i have a disdain for when anyone talks in this movie partially because i just wanted to go whole hog and be a silent film because that's clearly what it's getting at i think is just this pure vehicle i enjoy personally that most of it i would say probably like 70 percent of the dialogue happens on the boat with the civilians and that makes sense Mm-hmm. The asterisk there is I get irritated when anyone asterisk who isn't Rylands or Kyoan talks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like the pilots. It's very informative. It's like, what's your fuel for 50 gallons? Blah, 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 and he's fucking. Well, I mean, you know, truck. if we're going to be more accurate, it's more like, I love it. That just brings me into it. I'm just like, yes, I'm in the plane. <laughs> Listen to this muffled shit. Yeah. <laughs> the sound mix is a little iffy on the dialogue. That is a complaint that's been around since how long now? I mean, Jesus. Oppenheimer's the first time he's really pulled it off. Yeah. I just want to say that I think the sound mix and design of Dunkirk is incredible. Yes. Just not for the dialogue. Yeah. It's for the German airplanes. They sound like fucking TIE fighters. It's incredible. They do. It's certainly the one where that complaint bothers me least because Correct. of what the film is doing. But also there's a lot of subtlety and, and you know, there's a little bit of gimmickry, constant use of shepherd tones and the music and in the sound thing to kind of, you know, physiologically create a sense of sickness and an uneasiness in the viewer. The movie does such a good job utilizing all of the elements of cinema to create an intensely sensory experience mm-hmm. yes. on multiple levels closest nolan's really come to having that cinema of the body stuff that cole and i have talked about oh, yeah, at least in absolutely. my opinion dunkirk in general was a movie that i didn't care for until this recent rewatch and i'm i think a lot of this can come down to i also hate roller coasters like in real life <laughs> i have like an adrenaline allergy <laughs> the pathos of the film is the real world history I have a much stronger preference for when a film can create its own pathos and doesn't rely on just knowledge outside of that, which is what most films do. I think it's an interesting movie because it has very little of Nolan's predilection for character psychology. Now, there is psychology, but it's the immediate psychology of survival and for Killian's character, obviously. It's instinct. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Absolutely. And then it has almost none of his predilection for... Um, shit was the other thing I was going to say. Like intense narrative intricacy? or uh, Yeah, well, I mean, it still has the structural intricacy, but all that's ever happening within the structural intricacy is that the objects, of, as is that the scenes of the film are set against each other. They are all racing against time. Every single character, one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. I think it's more in like the pathos of this 
comes from, you know, imagining yourself, obviously, in Mm -hmm. the sensory situation of trying to survive. But then also the way that the British embrace these men who come home with their tail between their legs and their heads hanging down. And they're like, you lived. Welcome home. This comes up in Oppenheimer, too, is one of my favorite parts of it. And it connects to one of my favorite films of all time, Spirited Away, where like food in this movie becomes such a like, oh, my God, I'm so relieved. I'm eating this toast. Yeah, this I had that. Somebody just handed me a fucking bottle mm-hmm. of Coke. I had that exact thought in that scene. Broadly speaking, enjoyed this more this time around. I knew what it was this time here. I'm just here for all of the technical achievements. Outside of that, extre- it seems extremely unambitious in the screenplay department. Which is, you know, just depending on your point of view, an asset or a weakness. Yeah, not a lot of text. Not a lot of text. It's not something that you're sitting there like peeling the ideas out of. I think that's something that we'll probably get into a lot when we talk about the next three on our next episode. Because those are all very heady, conceptual, textual type movies. I think what I would offer relating to Nolan's screenplays, because he wrote this on his own, or at least without Jonathan. When he gets into the conceptual... His shit tends to be like one layer or like, you know, it'll have a couple layers, but it's not like deeply intricate. When we talk about the human condition, it's like, wow, these unanswerable questions of the soul. No one's a little bit more like, here is engineering schematic. Understand it. And I think that that's what Dunkirk is doing, but it's sensory and it's exciting. And he drops out the text and it's fine by me because it's like, you just understand it visually. You don't have to get any deeper Mm -hmm. into it. It's such an innate human need for oxygen and food and not having a bullet in your head. (laughs) Dunkirk, I think, just for stripping everything back and being just like this tight little depiction of trying to survive, very sensory oriented. For me, it's one of his movies I like the most. I haven't really talked about Nolan too much yet on here, at least like my experience with him, my journey with him, because, and this is going to sound harsh, but, you know, get out of the way. Yeah, we're going to be doing this a lot. (laughs) I don't really give a fuck about Christopher Nolan that much, Mm. which is harsh. And part of it is because when I was a teenager, I was a pretentious little asshole. (laughs) So there's this IMDb squad, if you want to call it that, of Nolan and Tarantino and Fincher and Wright and all these people, you know, that like you're supposed to get into, but they didn't interest me. I looked at like the list of people that they talked about who influenced them. And I was like, okay, thank you went and watched those people instead. Mm. And so coming back as an adult, even then, he's still just not my guy. Like, it's not the kind of stuff that I gravitate towards. He just kind of exists in this space where I don't find the connection. And it's interesting because I think all of us can be firmly described as not really Mm. Nolan guys. Yeah, the fact that Morgan and I might be like the two highest rated Nolan people is a little bit like, huh? How the fuck did that happen? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Oppenheimer, hey, it's made me reevaluate shit, man. He's a kind of filmmaker where it sort of feels like there's about three, maybe four that each of us really gravitate to. I know what Cole's three are. I think I've got like four. And then there's like some stuff below those four that I'm like, I like him. But yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that we all four have a similar relationship of like not being diehards, not being acolytes, but having things where, you know, that worked for me. This one I liked. You know, he really is, with Oppenheimer especially, coming into the fullest realization of the seeds of what has always made him really, really great. I mean, it's telling that I have four big Nolan ones. Three of them we're talking about today. The fourth is Memento, which is kind of in its own world. 
you know, so you have these three films mm -hmm. from his current run, you know, Interstellar, Dunkirk, and Oppenheimer, that represent the fullest realization of what he is capable of physiologically, emotionally, in all the ways that cinema can affect us. Yeah. And then you have sandwiched in there yeah. the single most incoherent thing he's ever created. And this is the fun of it because until very, very recently, like less than 24 hours ago, this is a guy who like tops out at a soft eight out of 10 for me. Mm. So the fact that I am the person here on the defense team for Tenet is very, very funny. It's just, <laughs> it wow, never would I, love it. I love the richness of it. It's the Matrix reloaded to Inception's knockoff, The Matrix. <laughs> How's, how does that hit you? <laughs> hit is the operative word. The year 2020, Riley saw this first, Tenet. I saw it second, Cole saw it third. Riley and I fucking, it wasn't a dislike. Hey. It was like, I was in the parking lot angrily <laughs> typing my review into my phone, like with venom, with menace. With malice. I would use the word detested. Yeah. Disdain. <laughs> yeah. Displeasure. And I walked out and I was like, huh, well, that was fun. That's cool. Shake them backwards. <laughs> we're in a really unique angle here because for three of us, this is like where Nolan fails in a realm where he otherwise triumphs. Literally wedged between my two favorite of his films, one of my least favorites. Whereas for Cole, <laughs> Cole, the biggest Nolan agnostic here. What is it about Tenet that works for you where other films fail? Uh, Show your work. Well, I feel like Strauss on trial, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> we have no burden of proof. <laughs> You're not on trial. We're not here to convict. We're just here to deny. <laughs> I think for me, stuff like Inception, Interstellar, for me, they all kind of get muddied down in the characterization of stuff. What I like about Tenet is that, not just in characterization, but specifically in mechanics. Inception, I think, takes way too goddamn long to explain everything. And it holds your hand until you get to the cool stuff. And what I at least enjoy about Tenet in some ways is that, yeah, it does that. But it also has a great balance of, okay, here's a little mechanic stuff. And then here's some action. And I think it has a great sense of maintaining that momentum throughout the entire movie. I can't necessarily deny the forward thrust of it. I rewatched this. I've seen this movie three times. You've seen of the it more than I, I have, which is funny. I dislike it a lot. Uh, it, in fairness, I saw it theatrically, right? As other people did. Not that many back in 2020 because the theater seating was still Very limited then. At the auditorium. Mm -hmm. Just a few of us there listening to Travis Scott at the end. <laughs> um, but then the second time I watched it was literally that same night. Jake and Morgan had gotten like a rip of it. I don't know if it was a cam rip or if it was like a streaming thing, like a web rip, whatever. But we ended up, they were watching it on Zoom and I just got on there with them because I just wanted to talk about the movie with someone. I think my original score for it, I raised it a half star when I rewatched it, was probably a little harsh. But the harshness came from the fact that like, I didn't hate the first hour of this movie. And in fact, the second time I watched it, I kind of enjoyed lots of it. But then the second 90 minutes of it just becomes irritating i mean it's it's just an irritating movie and if i think about it too long i get irritated because it's like dunkirk was this perfect expression of nolan for me there's no mechanical blah 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 there's no bullshit characterization of hey here's this guy that you're supposed to care about right <laughs> it's just giving you the essentials of the human survival 
and exploring them in a formally precise way that allows you to follow the action no matter where you are in time or space. You're in the plane, you're in the water, you're in the boat, you're on the sand, you can follow all of it perfectly. No one has to say anything to you. To me, that's how action works, whether you're watching a Jackie Chan film, or you're watching Hard Boiled, or you're watching The Matrix, watching Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Space is everything. Watch Brian De Palma's Carrie. Space is everything. And in this movie, the mechanics are, I mean, clearly quite well thought out in the sense of like somebody took the time to develop what all this stuff was going to look like visually. But it's complete fucking gobbledygook when people talk about it, which is every line of dialogue is exposition that explains you to nowhere. You have to wear this face mask because when you go back in time, your lungs are inverted and thus can't breathe inverted air. What? Fucking die. It's kind of idiotic, but I like that it embraces that it is so kind goddamn of. stupid. Where it gets me is that none of those action set pieces which involve reverse entropy in any way excite me or engage my imagination or my brain because I find them illegible. Yeah. And there's some stuff that's like the fire truck set piece that's like more normal or the bungee jump set piece that's more normal. But even those really lack for the kind of things that make a stunt in a Mission Impossible movie exciting for me. Because it's like, we're going to bungee jump off the side of this building in Mumbai. But like, what the fuck does that mean? It's utterly weightless. You set some gadget up and it went, and then we lift it up. Okay, we're doing this highway set piece. I need seven large trucks including one fire truck and we're going to surround this guy and we just have those resources we just have 12 drivers ready to go ready to do this and that's what i'd like that it's just like get the momentum like just keep going it's a bullet train it just does not stop except for when it does that's ghost protocol for me because ghost protocol never stops moving but everything is about the space everything is about what we have on hand and the improvisation that is required because we don't have everything on hand all the time oh, yeah. and because it's going to break and break and break and break mm -hmm. yeah and no doubt ghost protocol's better like of course that makes me feel better <laughs> like I, I might be cracked but i'm not that cracked nolan's made a lot of bond stuff he's even admitted it most recently where he's like it's had an embarrassing level of inspiration on my i mean this is basically from russia with love when you think it's about from it from russia with love with video game mechanics that tank it 100 percent nolan realizing or attempting to realize his bond aspirations and thinking okay how would mm -hmm. i do it i have a torture <laughs> history with this film <laughs> Literally like Oppenheimer after the bomb, fucking like <laughs> haunted look in his eyes. I don't want to get too indulgent with this either, because like you all know my history with this film. The night that I saw it, or it was the morning after, it was one of the two. It's it like a week was, before we got it here in America. Yeah, because COVID it was one of the benefits. Distribution got all fucky mm -hmm. and suddenly I had this movie really early. Yeah. Watching it was a painful experience because there was so much about it that I was excited for. And there was so much about it that on paper and then seeing it was exciting but then that comes crashing down with the reality of how poorly the film applies matches sets any of it within a context i think if you view the spectacle in this film in isolation you know the whole walking backwards reverse sequences upside down it's all like very neat as an idea the word i might use is trite like a lot of his films are trite or gimmicky. They just kind of feel thin. He is a director of gimmicks. The way that the spectacle is rendered here is unfortunately incoherent in a kind of similar way that the 
aspect of the film's spectacle is incoherent with its underlying emotional narrative and characterizations, which themselves are, you know, if you felt like the characterization in a movie like Inception was poor, then the characterization in this movie is, it's like an M. Night Shyamalan movie level <laughs> characterization. Conscientious. I mean, he names the character the protagonist. He knows. Guy. He knows yes. that he wrote the character. This is like the movie that. where I understand the Shyamalan defenders. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I think you just killed Morgan. We need to move on. I, I knew this was going to be fun. If I may, it's one, it lacks for the purpose and the definition of these previous two films. The docking sequence, you understand all of the physics, you understand the exact importance of getting it done and doing it right and how difficult it is to do. Got it. Cool. Dunkirk is literally just a hundred minutes of nonstop mm. mechanics where you can follow everything. This has a thing where they got to break into a thing to steal a Goya painting that is a fake Goya painting to replace the Goya Already painting. Already shut up. Wife Already blah, 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 shut blah, the blah. fuck up. Right? Right? <laughs> well, and how do they do it? How do they do it? Again, we assemble a bunch of fucking mystery people who are able to steal a 747 and drive it into the side of a building while the Gorenson score, which I actually like quite a lot. The Gorenson score is a big part of my enjoyment for it. It's just kind of like, shit, it's cool and glitchy. But that part of it, he's just literally doing Zimmer as a fucking plane rolls two miles an hour across a fucking tarmac. It's fucking boring. It's thunderously boring. It is impressive how they did actually fly that plane under that hangar and made it feel completely intangible. That's the worst. The highway scene is always the one that kind of gets me. It's got such reloaded DNA, like with that green color grading. It's very clearly trying to relive the excitement of that. But Mm -hmm. even though that scene is clearly filmed at 20 or 30 miles an hour, which isn't any slower than Mad Max Fury Road, it feels so slow. It just feels like we're just, okay, we're just over the top of these cars. Nothing is exciting. It's very Bond because it's sex over excitement, except it's Nolan. So it's not even sex. Not yet, anyways. To a certain extent, I understand the idea of enjoying the ballistic, meaningless spectacle of it all. But when the film is trying to do something with that, when the film is trying to have intimate emotional stakes, that's when it really starts to become actively irritating. I agree. It only does this in one way. It's Satter, who's played by Kenneth Branagh, who is the only character with any remote level of characterization. He's a Russian man from the fall of the Soviet Union, who built up a arms-dealing empire by going through the rubble and collecting up fucking nuclear waste. And it's like, oh, that's actually kind of a compelling, like, the end of communism. He pulls himself up by his bootstraps and it kills him. It's like kind of a textually interesting villain. And it's the film's worst performance. And then on the other side, you've got Cat, which is his wife, played by Elizabeth Debicki, textually the worst part of this movie, because it's a character that's just total spousal abuse and nothing else, suffering Mm -hmm. and suffering. It's blonde. This movie must have pathos, so I'm going to show woman beating. And also my son. (laughs) Including my son. What's weird is that she might be giving the film's best performance. She's really committed. Yeah, that's the thing. She takes like this absolute nothing role and just plunges into it, finding stuff that Nolan probably never even probably thought about, frankly. And they're the emotional core. If we go Inception, they are the Dom and Mal of this movie where it's the human component. I think that any human component that works in this film is pretty much solely because of her. What I find interesting about this film is that it's about what happens when the awe and the wonder stops. Like, it's a very sparse film and the apocalypse 
is there. The Twilight World. Yeah, the whole thing is that it's funny that this came out during the height of the pandemic in terms of just like cast or, you know, the amount of people on location. It's just a very sparse looking movie. But the end of the world has basically already happened in a sense. You have all these people in the future. The climate has gotten so bad that instead of, you know, going off to Saturn and then into the wormhole, like you have an interstellar, they're trying to go back, even though it's going to destroy everything, just to try to preserve themselves in some way, which is a very boomerific attitude. I mean, Sator is basically every boomer alive. He's specifically the boomer who like became disillusioned. He bought into the myth mm-hmm. of capitalism and it killed him. And so he said, fuck it. I'm going to kill everybody else too. Right. He's going to take out everyone else with him, including including my son. <laughs> I can't take that line. This is like the umpteenth Nolan thing where I'm like, that's La Jete. Uh It's really present in Interstellar, the whole like, you were my ghost thing, mm-hmm. revisiting the memory in the past, the sort of closed loop nature of that marker film. Mm. This is particularly an even more like textually specific La Jete thing where it is those oh, yeah. characters are time traveling into the past after the third world war trying to find any means possible to survive and then ultimately mm-hmm. he goes into the future too at the end and yeah anyway it's kind of an arrivaly sort of thing oh yeah but i think there's this interesting like loop that nolan's found himself in for the 2010s because after he wraps up his comic book trilogy which we'll get into one day and yeah. I will be crucified for that opinion, but That's whatever. Right. Yes, you will. <laughs> you got Interstellar, you know, a movie about the end of the world. Then you got a World War II movie. Then you have another movie about the end of the world. And now you have a World War II movie that's also about the end of the world. Right. I haven't anticipated a movie like this in literal years. This preoccupation with existential concerns Again, what I'll keep coming back to is when it's not enough to save them, like, you know, mm-hmm. all of the yeah. resources and all of the power and all of the possibility of the human mind and of the human collective mind. But the film is great because it's more complicated than that. It's not just about, you know, what happens when, you know, this brilliant mind who's able to come up with this one thing that he sees as being possibly the way to not just end the war, but end all wars. It's not just that it's not enough. It's that power and that possibility is taken away from you and is twisted and is used for something ultimately in entire opposition to how you may have originally envisioned your creation. The thing with Tenet to me is that it represents this textual idea of what is it like to live at the end of the world within the space of a few minutes, hours, days, weeks time. They're moving back and forth trying to, as Neil kind of waxes about at the end, the only bomb that people care about is the bomb that goes off, but no one thinks about the bomb that doesn't go off. Mm -hmm. And it's about what it is like to exist in the modern world where the bomb is always about to go off, where the doomsday clock is perpetually one minute to midnight. So you only have the space of that one minute in which to live your life. Very interesting idea. The biggest issue with Tenet is that it wants to be this dry, bland, fucking spectacle action movie. It's just Inception 2 without any of the psychology. And so you don't get the richness and the complexity of what it means to be somebody living under that knife and maybe the toll that it would take on you over the years to never make real progress, to never change Mm -hmm. the fate of the world. And something that I really would love a lot in that are things to kind of complement some of its more Cocteau, Orpheus type of features, like more surrealism, more weirdness. And I think in addition to the excitement that I felt with Oppenheimer coming into it as Chris returning to a historical base text and a psychological base text, is that he really floods it 
into the world of surrealism and the world of nightmare imagery and things that really break away from his kind of flatly realistic style. Even when he's making your Inception or your Tenet and he's breaking with the physics of the real world, everything is like an extension of the physics of the real world. And I think in Oppenheimer, we are literally grounded back in the machinations of history while he is willing to completely go for broke on that side of it. Mm. If certain things up to the point of Oppenheimer can be expressed as this is a really good focus of Nolan's talents, this is putting them all into one package. It's putting them all into one bound edition that is three hours of throttling cinema. Mm. Well, you want to hit a synopsis maybe? Yeah. I think it's a pretty basic, like everybody knows this story. Spoiler alert. Sort of. Everybody knows the second act of this movie. Exactly. I think that there is a little bit that gets into the weeds of, you know, what was going on in his life, maybe after the 40s. So this is a biopic of Julius Robert Oppenheimer, noted physicist who was crucial to the creation of the atomic bomb, which was used to end World War II by dropping it over Japan twice. And this film focuses several decades of his life, starting from when he began to study physics to when he was mingling with leftist groups in the United States, which led to some issues when he was hired for the Manhattan Project, all the way through the 1950s when his security clearance was revoked due to those beliefs that he held in the past that were considered not something to worry about during the war. But after he realized, oh my God, I have doomed all of humanity and started speaking out about that, the United States government was like, "Mm, we want you to shut up. So that's what covers. Nolan has spoken about this in interviews about being fascinated by Oppenheimer's dilemma and Oppenheimer's unique situation in terms of being more or less directly responsible for facilitating the possibility for human self-annihilation. And the film is remarkably powerful in the way that it navigates the nuances and complexities of Oppenheimer's apparent perspective, belief, understanding of his role, of the consequences of his actions, of the importance of his position, and of, generally speaking, his relationship to the United States government and to the structures of power that facilitate him being able to do this creative work in the first place. Even just the school and the student body in the beginning, you know, there's Mm -hmm. always somebody that he's answering to, whether it's Cambridge professors, the people who run Berkeley, where he comes to become the first ever theoretical physics professor in the United States. There's always some system. There's always some authority. That's even reflected with characters like we get so many chemists and scientists in this movie, Niels Bohr, Heisenberg, who works for the Nazis. And so we understand that his dilemma is a worldwide dilemma Mm -hmm. during this particular period where you've got scientists all over Europe, scientists in Japan, scientists in the Soviet Union, scientists in Mm -hmm. America. And once they've split that atom, all of them are working on the same project, no matter where they are in the world. There's no going back. One of the most fascinating aspects of the film's context is how these incredible advancements in physics, the realization of quantum physics, vast new ways of understanding the fundamental makeup of all of existence in tandem with these vast advancements in human destruction between the two greatest wars ever waged on the planet. 
basically just rolling off of the momentum of how all of our engineering advancements at the turn of the century created these war machines during the First World War, like tanks, planes, gas, napalm. And then this is furthering that, but into that atomic and elemental level that mm. goes beyond physics and engineering down to you know the air that we breathe and mm. the dirt that grows our food and the water that we drink. Mm-hmm. And that core parallel, the fundamental building blocks of the universe are becoming visible to us. And the splitting of the atom is increasing our perception of the nature of the world, basically, at the same time as all of the means for our destruction are advancing and the millions of casualties across the Great War and across the various conflicts that led up to World War II as well are claiming more lives than ever before as all these engineering advancements are creating the means for this destruction to become more industrialized and more mm-hmm. streamlined. That parallel works the push and pull between or reconciling of human wonder, human possibility, human creativity, the understanding of the universe, all that kind of stuff with the context in which that knowledge exists, the price for that knowledge. And we can come to understand more about the world. But in this film, that understanding like quite literally creates the means for a new level of human vulnerability to the extent that we might well destroy ourselves completely as a cost of the logical extent of our wonder, of our awe. Mm -hmm. You know, that to me feels like the richest realization of the central tension in Nolan's recent work ever. And that's just the context for the movie. It's a question of who are the caretakers of the bleeding edge of human understanding and technology. Are they worthy caretakers? Even if they are, do they agree? Because we see all these different scientists throughout Europe, all these different scientists at Los Alamos, and they're not the same. They don't think the same. They don't have the same strengths, the same beliefs, or the same convictions, or the same political affiliations. So what does it mean that the Soviets and the Americans and the Nazis are all trying to get their hands on this one thing. It's like that innate human condition of being separated as we are by culture, by space, by belief that innately complicates something. You know, in order to have denuclearization, we need a unified front. We need everybody on the same page, all holding hands together, going, kumbaya, we're going to fucking live. This is an entire narrative about the difficulty, if not the impossibility of getting people onto the same page, explored through the creation of the bomb, that collaborative effort, and then all of the fallout. Morgan, I'm going to check in with you. Yeah, I mean, where to start, (laughs) right? I mean, this is, I think, everybody here's favorite Nolan film now. By a country mile. It's the first film of his that I've actually loved. I'm not certain of it, but... Yeah, I mean, the film's been out for like three days, so who knows? Well, I mean, I think I know. I've seen it twice now, and pretty concretely on that second round. I was like, oh, this is the one. It's such a perfect encapsulation of so many of the predilections that Nolan and I share. Mm. History, particularly in the 1940s and 30s. One that we haven't explored until this one, that being political and political thrillers specifically. I mean, is it his first political film ever? There's some politics in his Batman trilogy, but I think that they're all kind of clumsy. They're not really intended to be strong political statements. Yeah, for a lack of interest in that arena in those films. Right. And I think admittedly in this one, it's less a preoccupation with politics and more preoccupation with political thrillers. There's so much good night and good luck and the conversation and the insider in this movie. This movie in particular, I think, is maybe even more about the Cold War than about World War II. The Red Scare. Yeah, oh, absolutely. McCarthyism. Mm-hmm. 
again, naturally, the time and countdown, which has always maybe been where I get on with Nolan the most. He and I both share an interest, a sort of thematic predilection for that concept. I was reminded a lot, mostly just by proximity, in that I also played Final Fantasy VI for the first time all the way through in the lead up to this. And there's a spot in that game about halfway through it where it goes, this was the day the world forever changed, Mm. which I think is like, it couldn't not be lifted directly from the Trinity test and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Japanese reflections on technology through media tend to be about one thing and one thing only, from Godzilla to Akira. Yeah, much like every film in the 70s and 80s, every American film was in some way about Vietnam. Mm -hmm. It feels like something that they harp on in the trailer, General Groves, played by Matt Damon, goes, the Nazis have a 12-month head start, and then Oppenheimer goes, 18 months. And from that point onward, specifically when you get this great scene where Oppenheimer reads in the paper, they've split the atom, and he goes, that's not possible. And then Dr. Lawrence comes in and he goes, the guy in the other room did it, which I think is such an interesting display of how Oppenheimer is often deified, yeah, even by this film. But also, as the film repeats, theory yeah. can only take you so far. Yeah, It invites you to think about how much foresight and actual understanding of consequences Oppenheimer really has at any given moment. His ability not only intellectually, but physiologically Mm. being spread so thin. There's a limit. Well, not necessarily his capacity to understand, but his willingness. It raises the question of, are you feeling guilt because you're the scientific genius behind this thing? Are you feeling guilt just because you're the guy who was able to organize everyone into getting it done? He convinced all of those scientists, he's the reason that they were all there. He's the great salesman of science. He's the great politician. His life got so mired in politics after the bomb. And it's because he was always that person. And I think that's such an interesting thing that this movie explores is that without him, all these different viewpoints and personalities never would have congealed. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe somebody could have done it, but he's the guy that it needed to be to pull all these different people together. Something that interested me regarding this splitting the atom thing that we're specifically talking about. Theoretical physics, quantum physics, a little bit of a heady topic. I think Nolan does his best work ever as a filmmaker navigating through these things because the concepts are clear, but you're so much more oriented around the character and the, the pace, like the flow of this movie, that you're never getting caught up, bogged down by all the nerdy shit. Yeah, for me, it's like, I don't have the capacity to understand this. So can we just get to the physicality of it all? And I think what Oppenheimer does so well is that it gives you like a little bit, like, you know, stuff you might remember hearing in high school, but it's like, this is a fucking race and we don't have time to look in your goddamn math book and, you know, write down a bunch of formulas. Let's go. And the genius of it before the race even starts is the abstraction of it by the film, which is something that he's never really done before. Yeah. When Oppenheimer studying at Cambridge and you know, Mm -hmm. throwing the glasses into the corner of the room. Yeah. Can you hear the music, Robert? Uh, My whole music take felt validated in that many words. I was just like, yes, that's it. The way that the film from the outset realizes these abstracts and largely theoretical concepts through visuals and through sound is something that immediately involves you in their tangibility to Robert from the outset. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
He has these visions. And the nature of those visions as well. The way that they change. It's beautiful the way that they get corrupted and corroded yes. as the film goes along. They're irradiated. Just really quick, I just want to talk about the fundamental paradox of this brand of physics. So the first thing that you might ever learn about physics or chemistry for that matter is that the atom is the building block of all matter. And it's made up of three subatomic particles, the proton, the neutron, and the electron. And we know for a fact that this is the building block. It is the essential piece by which all of our understanding of physics out here in the macro world works, operates. It's the particle. The fundamental paradox of quantum physics is one that Oppenheimer explains in the movie. It's that light is simultaneously a particle and a wave, which is not possible except that that's how it works. Because on the subatomic level of the atom, things like quarks, neutrinos, and gluons do not obey the laws of physics as we understand them. They obey some other fucking laws of physics that we don't understand for shit outside of the realm of theoretical physics, which has obviously been in development since the 20th century. And to me, this is an essential metaphor for who Robert Oppenheimer is within the context of this story. On the inside, he's a complex difficult to understand thing that doesn't follow the rules, that has his own rebellion, that has his own ideals. And on the outside, he's the hydrogen atom. He is the building block of everything else. He's a soldier. He's somebody that obeys. He's somebody that upholds the structures and the systems of the United States of America quite specifically. Mm. And so it's this push-pull between what is inside a person and how the person has to behave in the outside world, in the real political quagmire of war. It's just such a wonderful little metaphor for who he is and the complex fight that is raging inside of him at every single turn throughout this narrative. Morgan, you mentioned that this is much more of a Cold War film than a World War II film. I would emphasize that to the nth degree. I mean, this is barely a World War II film. It is a World War II film only in the sense that many of its events happen in the process of World War II. And it's kind of a motivator. The anti-Semitic violence of the Nazis mm. is like the catalyst. But what's interesting about the way the film handles World War II is that until it absolutely has to, it does not really engage with what is going on mm -hmm. within that conflict. Oppenheimer and his team are focused so much in an insular world on their particular goal, which is, as they see it, all about physics. And they don't really take time to think about anything wider beyond that. Or when they do, they try to shed that thought as quickly as they can. And so for the first sort of almost two hours of the film, mm -hmm. I think it takes about two hours to get to the Trinity test. You're so involved within this very contained narrative of the building of the bomb. And it doesn't matter that it's a bomb. The building of this creation, you know, the steps it takes to get there. The gadget. We're representing the isotopes with marbles. Great detail. Also the various sort of bureaucratic processes and things that are going on. Yeah. Before and after. Because, of course, we've got that Nolan classic, we're going into the future. We're seeing the we confirmation hearing for Downey Jr.'s character as he's being nominated yeah. to Eisenhower's cabinet. I think this part of it's awesome because it makes it a memory movie. Mm. This mosaic of history and memory that is like exactly the type of catnip for my brain that allows me to just like get fully into something. Yeah. You've got these two different panels. You've got Oppenheimer fighting to get his security clearance renewed because he was denied. And then you got Strauss right. trying to get confirmed to Eisenhower's cabinet. Straws. Straws. Lowly shoe salesman. <laughs> you know, 
once upon a time after Doolittle, I said that Robert Downey Jr. was cursed and would never yeah. act again. I thought his last non-self-conscious performance in his career would be Zodiac. And now he's giving maybe the best performance of his career. It's not better than Zodiac, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard. Paul Avery Hive. (laughs) Up until the moment of the Trinity test, the film was so contained within this world of this particular goal. It's got sort of procedural elements as they're moving towards that. And you as a viewer get very invested in the stages and the creation of the atomic bomb. And then as soon as the Trinity test happens, which I think is the most bravura piece of filmmaking that Nolan has Mm. ever done, bar none. I mean, he has other stunning sequences in his films, but none have shocked me the way that that did. I agree. And then after the Trinity test, the film is entirely contained within the after effects it bulges outward it becomes more macro it can only be contained within this internal mission for so long until suddenly the consequences of that Mm -hmm. is inescapable is everything when matt damon yells in that one scientist's face like this is the most important thing that's happened in the history of the world he's not talking about building a bond he's talking about building a new world he's talking about fundamentally changing the fabric of our lives on planet earth Mm -hmm. period And that's what happens after the Trinity test. The world is different. It is a different place than before. It's not that we have a weapon now. It is that we have altered the stakes of the game. Because prior to that, in order to have somebody really come fuck up Los Angeles, you would have to fly across the Pacific Ocean, somehow mount a land-sea air assault on one of the most heavily defended countries in the world. Now all you got to do is press a button, and a rocket comes from Cuba, Mm. and there is no more America. Bye. The inherent implication within that of mutually assured destruction as well, that didn't exist before either. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. The fact that we did this means that the Soviets will also do this. Not that they can, but that they they will. will. It's Murphy's Law. And what else does Murphy's Law tell us? That if that bomb can go off and kill us all, dot, dot, Well, it's this perversion of Oppenheimer's stated goal, which is to end all wars, essentially. Hilariously naive. Extremely naive. To what extent you believe he believes it? Or it's just something that he tells himself, yeah. Mm, The lie. You know, that is what he said. At a moment in human history where war itself becomes unconscionable and impossible. And then he meets Harry S. Truman. What he doesn't count on or what he chooses to overlook. What's great about the very final scene of, of this movie is that oh, God. it at first as though it's answering that question, but really all it's doing is making the internal state of Oppenheimer throughout the entire process even more uncertain and even more layered with levels of reality. There's that goal to end all wars, and then there's the perversion of that goal in the sense that it is realized, but the inverse way. What you have created will indeed end all wars. Yes. Uh-huh. There will be no wars to fight because no one will be alive for it. Drown in 10 gallons of water or 10,000. Of course, there's a way that in a very Nolan fashion, he chooses to visually represent this shift within Oppenheimer as he realizes he can no longer feel content with this as a mission to create. Mm-hmm. In the wake of the Trinity test, he's being rapturously received. He's being applauded. You know, there's lots of sequences that really lean into this very sort of almost parodic portrayal of American exceptionalism that I'm sure is very realistic, but also at the same time, Nolan really leans into it. And you're watching him and he's seeing this woman in the front row whose skin is peeling off of her face. 
place, notably a woman who is portrayed by Christopher Nolan's real life daughter. And there's been a lot of talk in Nolan's predilection with existential issues in his recent work of how that relates to his intense awareness of not just his own vulnerability, but the vulnerability of the people that he loves as well. And that becomes you know, on a meta level, a core way in which the film flexes its emotional muscles yeah. and really kind of pushes you. It's by far the most surrealistic work of his career. Nolan movies are so founded up on reality. All these physics, all these engineering problems, munitions and explosions. We've got all these different scientists because they bring their different skill sets. Oppie's not good at maths. We've got this guy. We've got fucking Benny Softy playing the scientist with the worst vibes at Los Alamos. Father of the hydrogen bomb, notably. Something that I really loved in this movie was how it explored that the hydrogen bomb basically was being developed concurrently with the atom bomb. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like a progression from one to the next. Splitting the Mm -hmm. atom opened the door so wide that everyone ran through it. Yeah, Oppenheimer was just the first guy that got through. And it undermines the credibility of his plausible deniability as well. Absolutely. I couldn't envision this or I don't endorse this. And the film really shakes you and actually actualizes that conflict in the form of a character who is questioning and badgering and kind of yeah. you know, pushing against his understanding of consequence and his integrity. Bond falls on the just and the unjust alike. But Zach, you mentioned how like the film, how Nolan introduces like subtly or sometimes not so subtly surrealistic elements as yeah. well to kind of underpin the sense with which we've gone so far. It's Oppenheimer sitting naked in a chair for the world to judge him in 70 millimeter IMAX, yeah. quite blankly. It induces a sense of disconnect from reality by depicting something more realistically than we're used to seeing it. And that is the relationship between sound and light in an explosion. Mm -hmm. uh, Where where you see the explosion before you hear it. Yeah, That delay is incredible. Something that's introduced as a formal device before you get to the Trinity test. It's Mm -hmm. just exaggerated at that point because of the scale of it. It's fascinating how what it does as a viewer, when we see explosions on screen, we're used to seeing this perfect synchrony in the boom and the effect. But that's not how light and sound are related in these kinds of situations realistically. If you read about people at Hiroshima, they don't call that explosion the pop or the explosion or the bang. They call it the pika, which means the flash. Because it's a big blinding flash of white light that overtakes the entire horizon long before Mm -hmm. you hear it or it burns you into the fucking wall. It's just brilliant how he's able to depict an explosion of that scale more realistically than ever by giving you that delay. Mm -hmm. But because we're not used to that, it feels surreal. Yeah, It's surrealism that comes out of this terrifying reality. And the anticipation elements, I didn't want to get too deep into the weeds with comparisons here, but one of the ones that struck me as I was sitting in my chair was to James Cameron's Titanic. That's a movie that has a disaster you know is coming from the first minute of the film. Mm -hmm. And so once you start to creep up on it, there is a feeling of dread, cold, icy, Dunkirky dread that seeps into my bones about the middle of Titanic because you know that you're about to watch about a thousand people drown. I thought I was going to throw up in the build-up to the Trinity test. I felt nauseous. I was like, I'm going to fucking puke. It feels so fucking ominous. And it's such a great reversal 
the movie does that classic thing. I think this is so cinematic, especially for someone like Nolan, who's made things that I think are very influenced by heist films, Michael Mann, you know, talking about like Inception. It's the crew and they come together, right? And when they achieve the mission at the end of Inception, they're all fucking hugging and kissing like the Claire de Lune sequence of Ocean's Eleven, right? Soderbergh. That is the Trinity test, except it is literally overshadowed by the mushroom cloud. Mm -hmm. Their success is the key that unlocks the door. Again, you know that it's coming. You know that it's going to be a moment of real, actual, no kidding, hundreds of thousands of people, carnage unleashed on Japan. And not just that. This is the thing with the Oppenheimer plausible deniability thing is maybe he thought about this. Maybe he didn't. He's not a biologist. Bomb isn't the only fucking thing that kills you. It's the radiation in the dirt fucking being thrown into the air and raining down on top of you. That's what fucking kills you. That's what kills not the people in the blast radius, but it kills the environment. It kills communities. It lingers for years. It lingers for generations. There is a seismic impact to everything that happens here that can be predicted, but never understood until you've hit the button, watch the pillar of fire, turn the night sky into daylight. and upend everything you understood about your place in the universe because as frail as we are we now have a power that can blink life out of existence i think an underplayed element of this and all the reactions i've seen to it is the actual urgent importance of this movie as a reflection of our current daily reality every day of our lives we are living in the reality that this guy created nolan said that at the beginning before i had seen the movie he was talking about it in the press like this is the guy that made the modern world and you watch it and you're like yep he is the guy that made the modern world by fucking ruining it <laughs> like it's very caustic but yep. it's true he is the most important figure of the 21st century even though he didn't live in the 21st century Nuclear war still remains the greatest existential threat. Could happen now. Could happen 10 minutes from now. It's greater and more immediate and more likely than the imminent. Like the climate apocalypse, you know? Mm -hmm. It's more likely to kill us than global warming, which is probably going to kill us. Nolan is making you think about this, and he's bringing it back into the public consciousness, this mm -hmm. idea. But he's doing it in a human context that gets you to think of not just blankly about the terrifying threat of this abstract thing, but actually how it operates on a human level, how we exist with that threat. How there are parties in this world who want to use that threat to leverage their power, their position, their careers. Mm -hmm. And if you stand up to them, they're going to crush you like an ant. They're going to fucking put you in the dirt. Because their power means more to them than apparently even their own survival. Yeah. Just a thunderous fucking room full of applause, cheering, vibrating reality until it breaks and you start seeing death everywhere you look, everywhere you walk, another body. I love that gym scene because I feel like it paints this picture of what it is like to be Oppenheimer mm -hmm. every day for the rest of his life, no matter what he's doing. He's an old doddering man being handed a piece of paperwork. And I imagine he's seeing the charred bodies of children laying in the streets. Yeah. Dean was so overwhelming, it broke the damn projector. <laughs> God, I was so fucking lucky with my screening because everything just went off without a hitch. Those reels that are like 11 miles long look unwieldy. I can't help but wonder if all of the issues that are happening at IMAX theaters across the world make this a nail in the coffin for the IMAX 70 IMAX. millimeter format. I think it's done. 
celluloid in general is so temperamental and the skill is such a lost art that like projectionists mm -hmm. just don't really exist anymore and yeah. then you add in this grotesque size of the thing and how delicate it must be to work with it's a three hour run so you have to sit there and fucking handle it for three hours and then you know at your tlc chinese i'm sure that they have eight show times per day if the most prestigious cinema in los angeles can't even do it why are we bothering yeah we literally gave our guy a standing ovation at the end because, like, what a god. They didn't even communicate with us, so it was um, just, like, we were ready to start a riot. Yeah, they introduced him to us. The guy was going out on the mic. He's like, that's your projectionist up there. <laughs> it's interesting, just on a sort of metatextual level, because celluloid, practically an explosive yeah. in and yeah, of itself. Just, there's that innate connection to Nobel that this yeah. movie even draws. You know, Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, and then trying to reframe his legacy through peace. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that really sticks out for me. And I think is maybe kind of the core idea is that theory only takes you so far. Experience has to take you the rest of the way. Sometimes yeah. your experiences will haunt you forever. But, and this is kind of a key argument for the importance and the vitality and the enduring appeal of this movie to me is I think Hiroshima and Nagasaki are the reason why we have not yet met nuclear annihilation. Because the people living remember that. Because the people living have seen the photos. We understand the damage that was done. And while we haven't really made the strides that we need to to walk ourselves off the edge, I think that memory, that violence, and that horror are what keep us from fucking leaping off of the edge at any given moment. And I think that mm. that's kind of something that is explored through this. What a fucking difficult thought that is to hold as well because the implication of that you know at one point you know the idea is floated well why are we actually proving our point by dropping this bomb on two cities why don't we just drop it in the ocean and, and then our point is made you know what i mean right, and that right. is rejected this is a brutal point to reconcile which is that as unconscionable and as horrific and as you know completely objectively evil honestly yeah, as the bombing yeah. of hiroshima and nagasaki are you know, the closest we ever come to nuclear apocalypse is the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I'm sure those pictures were in Kennedy's head when he was navigating yeah. that. And Absolutely. that's another example of how the fate of humanity can depend so much on just the temperament. Emotion. Image. Mm -hmm. The sheer, like, luck. Why didn't they bomb Kyoto? Because it was sentimental to the guy that made the decision. Yeah. I wanted to strangle that motherfucker. I have rarely watched a movie and wanted to like reach through the screen and fucking murder a fictional representation of a real person but like a fictional character mm. more times consecutively than i have in this film yeah one of the waterboard dane dehan <laughs> but again all of this is real like these are actually the words yep. that they were using yeah. to justify their behavior this is the reality of the american security apparatus particularly during the cold war in the lead up to those kissinger years when it got worse and those kinds of difficult ideas the possibility or the idea that human beings have been saved from total nuclear annihilation by perhaps the most heinous act they've ever committed you know that's an incredibly difficult idea maybe the most difficult idea that a film breaches so much so that it's not really something that's lingered on all that much but something that the film does focus on obviously is Oppenheimer himself and you have that sequence that's been mentioned in the gym where it's kind of first really highlighted Oppenheimer's consciousness of the weight of what he has done and the yeah, guilt that yeah. begins to layer upon him yeah, and yeah. the film invites you to 
empathetically imagine what that must feel like. But contrary to some more, I would say, simplistic readings of such complex material, it does not in itself feel sorry for Oppenheimer at the expense of people affected by his actions. It says to you, you can understand this man's emotional state and you can maybe even empathize to a certain extent. And that does not have to undermine your sense of empathy or understanding or horror or however you feel about the actual realities of the war for other people. Ignorance, apathy, and duty are not excuses Mm. for Mm. this type of criminal behavior. Mm. At the same time, he may be the greatest denuclearization advocate in the history of America Mm. because of the weight of that horror pressing on his soul. That's another extension of that paradox. The film's great because it doesn't offer an answer, but it invites you to think about this as potentially we become more complacent than ever regarding them, and we perhaps need a reminder of the realities at stake and at play here. I mean, that's the ending of the movie. Look at how close we are and were then and still are. This conflict between self-concern and destructive potential for the whole film, one of the devices is that Strauss is just agonized by this conversation between Einstein and Oppenheimer that he wasn't party to, but that he interprets as being a little bitch session where they were talking about him behind their back. Like he sees them and his self-absorption projects onto that interaction where in reality, the two men were discussing the fate of the human race, but he couldn't imagine that. That in itself is a parallel for how self-concern, self-absorption, human ego dwarfs the realities of these conversations and of the consequences of these things. Strauss basically being Salieri and misinterpreting Mm, this incident that turns him into the weapon that destroys Oppenheimer's reputation and standing inside the government. Greases the wheels for the Mm H-bomb. Which also gets turned on him when... Rami Malek comes in after not speaking for basically the entire movie and says, I'm about to end this motherfucker's whole career. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) The conversation that he misinterprets between Oppie and Einstein is really parallel to the petty way that he has chosen to interpret Oppie handing him his own ass (laughs) in another hearing that is not like a major scene of the film, but is kind of presented in flashback as this inciting incident where Oppenheimer just embarrassed the shit out of Strauss talking about like the nuclear isotopes in a sandwich. sandwich. And he gets so hung up on it. But what Oppenheimer is doing there is he's trying to save the world. Like he's trying to desperately use all of the considerable tools at his disposal to convince everyone not to kill us, not to doom us to the apocalypse. And all Strauss sees is a guy getting in the way of his career. Mm -hmm. Every time Matt Damon shows up with another fucking star on his lapel, I just want to puke. (laughs) Yep. To a certain extent, Oppenheimer is shunned for his anti-Americanism as its view through the lens of the McCarthy-era communist panic, but also to the extent that Oppenheimer was only useful insofar as he could get America to a particular point where it could then discard him anyway. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thread of the conversation with Einstein and Oppenheimer at the end of the film. They'll shake your hand, but it will be for them, not for you. Mm-hmm. There's multiple aspects of that final scene that just add a brutal punch to the end of the movie, but that one in particular stings. You know, it's this idea about like the death of nationality in the face of this destruction, like the world is going to war. So the Swedish scientists, the German scientists, the American scientists, whoever, they don't want to be a part of their country's carnage. So a lot of them emigrate maybe out of Nazi Germany, of course, because of the anti-Semitism too. And so they 
lean into this abstraction of their jobs, of their careers, and of their missions as a means to not think about the nationality, as a means to not think about the political reality, either not understanding or failing to address how what they're doing is fueling the destruction of that very machine. Mm -hmm. This is like just a great American politics movie because it's just like the American security apparatus eating itself. Mm -hmm. Morgan's already made the comparison that I like the most, which is to the insider. If Nolan is a Kubrick guy first, he's a man guy second. So I think there's like a clear lineage between those two films. And in particular, it's just that sheer size of the cast and the way that it all kind of comes out in these debates where like Jason Clark just comes in and throws down a 30 point game in just a few minutes or Gary Oldman, for example. And then it's also in the way that Oppenheimer reflects both the Pacino and Crow figures of the insider the kind of whistleblowing employee that's got the bullet in his mailbox and then kind of the high-minded, we have to tell the truth guy, but he's the same guy. Mm -hmm. You're just exploring him through different periods of his life. Beautifully marries the character psychology to the procedure and then finds really important, I think important, like I don't like to call movies important uh, because none of them are on a scale of like, <laughs> negative one to one Sorry, no, not. There, there's no important that. movie in the history of film i love movies they're probably the thing on earth that gives me the most joy before i fucking kick the bucket in some horrible nuclear disaster but they're not important like they're toy commercials they're things that you go and see with your friends to have fun but of all the things that i have seen this year only like one really a lot of the things that i've seen this year that are at the top are just things that manage to reflect on modern aspects of living and geopolitics like cole's favorite movie this year's pacifiction by albert Seurat. Mm -hmm. and i think that there's i mean that's a movie about nuclear submarines yeah the nuclear program of the french in tahiti like it's the same it's just an extension of the same idea the bomb is always there mm-hmm as the current existential threat becomes artificial intelligence, we maybe might start to see films that potentially converge on these yeah. two forms of annihilation. Dead Reckoning, part two. One by definition intangible and and the other a physical product of human toil. That's the plot of The Creator, mm. directed by Gareth Edwards, coming out in September of this year. Yeah, with a shot. In the trailer that looks like they just kind of copied and pasted footage of the lebanon dock explosion which is a little unnerving yeah, but... yeah we're going to get a lot of these we're going to get a lot of films that are essentially going to be you know what if the cuban missile crisis was resolved by an algorithm this is an interesting movie because i think it almost might posit that we'd be safer in the hands of ai or at least no worse off in the hands of ai than we are in the mm. hands of people because mm. of ego and emotion and all these other things we haven't really talked about and i think it's probably the film's most easy to critique aspect it's probably the elements of it i like the least there's two women in this movie actually there's three uh olivia thurlby is the the third she's just one of the scientists on the Nolan, name a woman uh so we got florence Pugh who plays gene tatlock the commie gets him into trouble florence pew titty mm -hmm. i am become deaf destroyer of worlds <laughs> while is that cornier than munich that is like unhinged it is it is unhinged i love the second one though the callback to it when they're in that small briefing mm. room and she's just staring into emily blunt's eyes and it's just like oh emily <laughs> blunt is yeah i love everyone in this movie emily blunt might be running circles around 95 percent of this cast I agree. She is an absolute, like, she's up there. 
like top three performances in the film. It's too thankless for me to really get that far with it. It's and it's my biggest issue is that for two thirds, three quarters, she is the wife. And it's only really in that last half hour where she's like, by the way, I'm Emily Blunt and I'm here to fucking take this movie and solidify my really, really, really high opinion of it because she really does find that depth and that fight. Yeah, And that's why I think she's so amazing because she takes one look at Jason Clark and it's like, I'm about to nail you to the ground. And I make lunch out of this motherfucker. It's a distinction between how Nolan characterizes Kitty Oppenheimer and his screenplay and just what Emily Blunt does with what is the feels as though Nolan is torn between maybe his desire to disregard it completely to a certain extent, but also his understanding that it is so important. The way that he negotiates relationships, the way that he uses people, and the way that he perhaps inelegantly disregards or turns his back on people. Oppenheimer is someone who has the strength of his convictions in whatever he's doing, but is a kind of blinded fool who realizes after the fact how much he has let that get in the way of seeing something greater. You know, whether it's the consequences of him building the bomb or whether it's the consequences of him turning his back Mm -hmm. on Tatlock. And he just becomes this kind of, oh, after she passes away, he's despondent. He's, you know, it's my fault. I did this. Right. That's what she spends that final half hour doing. She's like, why are you trying to be a martyr? Get it the fuck together. Exactly. Do you think they'll forgive you? (laughs) No, not really. No, No. going back to the human condition. One of the key questions of that is, can you retain your humanity in a world that does not value that virtue in a world that doesn't care about your softness? And the answer is no, you cannot. Nope. You're going to fucking die. You Mm. absolutely You're either going to compromise your principles or you are going to die. And that's it. Those are the two things. And Oppenheimer boils down to a choice of evil or naive. And at the end of the day, when the light consumes your city, it won't matter which of the two that it really was. And that's kind of the interesting thing for such a psychologically driven film as this to basically say, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how much it haunts you or it wounds you. It only matters what you do. It's not what you say, but what you do. Do that defines you? I don't know. Who said that before? Was that Batman? Anyway, like as much empathy as this movie grants him, the topic that it is talking about is so thoroughly real and so thoroughly like kind of final and absolute that there isn't a lot of room for gray area, which maybe is why this film has those monochromatic elements to kind of help break you away from the more vivid, colorful sections. We have these bits that are in 70 millimeter Hoyt Van Hoytema black mm-hmm. and white that mm-hmm. take you into like, you know, the text. When Oppenheimer is visualizing atoms colliding and when he's seeing the world in that way, it's all very vibrant and colorful. It's much more colorful than even just the regular parts of the movie. Right. And then when the body test happens, there's an explosion of color. Every part of Oppenheimer's life that's depicted subsequent to that moment and the chronology of his life is in black and white because that color almost. has been, well, almost, yeah, good point. You know, that color has been poisoned. But we do see some elements in the past that are in black and white as well that are a little bit more like matter of record. A lot of it's Strauss's viewpoint, I think. And I think that's yeah. more what it's getting at directorially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the major color things that happens after the bomb is the very end. The conversation with Einstein, when you really see the conversation, it's in color. Yeah. I think it's fascinating that that final image of Killian with his hat looking, you know, right into the camera is the most 
you know, the whale looking slightly to the left on the couch type of, you know, stock image grinning Francis McDormand in Nomadland marketing. It's that kind of image. And then when you get to it in the film, you're like, holy shit. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's the power of the movies, baby. So is everything is context. It's the new age that's being born. And that age is the twilight of mankind. You know, we don't know at twilight right now, we can't see from our current perspective in time, whether our twilight is before a dawn or a dusk, but we know that we're in the twilight. We know that the sun is just beneath that horizon. We don't know which direction it's moving in just yet. And we haven't since 1945 and we won't until question mark. Time is the enemy. We live in a twilight world. Yeah. What a a fucking movie, man. And can I just say, as someone who is either agnostic or kind of hates depending on which one, the scores of Ludwig Göransson. This is the best score that a Nolan movie has ever had. Yep. It's the first time that artist, specifically Göransson, he's always seemed to me like a genuine, like, Rivera maestro figure who, conversely, has also been playing to the trends. In particular, I, like, detest his Mandalorian score. But this is the first time that he's been, like, set loose, I feel. And it is as much a method of telling the story, I think, as the cinematography. The score itself, the album, is a little more than half of the length Mm -hmm. of the film itself, particularly in tracks like Fusion and Fission and Trinity and Can You Hear the Music. The story of Oppenheimer is told through that sort of operatic fashion. Really incredible work. I really think it ties into that characteristic that no one has. He's musical. He renders all of this history into one progressive three-hour rush. There's no meandering. There's no getting off of the track. It's one big symphony. And there's one other person that I think has to be credited there, and that's the editor who he worked with on Tenet, Jennifer Lame. Mm-hmm. She also is the editor on Hereditary and a number of other movies. Marriage Story, Holy yeah, I think. It, baby. What an edit. Yeah. What a fucking rush this movie is. It's remarkable, if not almost miraculous, mm-hmm. how coherent and involving and not entirely bewildering this film is in its edit. And none of the typical Nolan-y bullshit of like, okay, this is happening. Oh, we're not breaking away from the Trinity test to watch him decide if he's going to cheat on Emily Blunt, for instance. Right. Like That is the type of shit that he would do in a lot of his other mm. films. <laughs> The film is so fast-paced. It may be the most fast-paced a Nolan film has ever been. Literally faster than Dunkirk, which doesn't seem possible, but I think that it is. Could have stood to be another hour, frankly, but then again- I don't know if it physically could be another hour. (laughs) What Lame and Nolan are doing together here would be diluted, if not outright Mm, lost. I mean, maybe- You need to have that sense of total breakneck pace. You need to be able to get lost in the rush of all the fucking shit that's happening so that you, like Oppenheimer or like any number of the people involved, forget or at least, you know. Titanic. You're with Jack and Rose on those eternal sunsets on the deck of the boat. Holy fuck, we're all going to (laughs) die. You need like the yeah. warm cold dynamic. You need to be able to move from the awe into the horror. You have to have both. And mm. this moves freely between the two, literally independent of time in a way that like, I, I don't know, man, I five-starred Little Women and I four and a half-starred Make. It's possible that just when you structure a movie like this and do it well, I'm just in the bag. Particularly when you're talking about how to render a biography 
life is not a linear path, even if that's how you experience it. It is a collection of memories and ideas and an evolution that happens not linearly, but cyclically over the course of your existence on earth. And mm -hmm. there is no better way to depict the human mind or human existence than by understanding that we are emotional creatures and not intellectual creatures. We are not things that exist to go from left to right and top to bottom, but our thoughts are associative and emotional, just like the mm -hmm. way that we talk about these movies whenever we have conversations. We don't just go plot beat one, two, three, four, five. We go one, four, two, one, four, five, two, three. And like the nature of our memories is inherently fragmentary, right? We remember, mm -hmm. you know, the core of what the event is or what the memory is. And the movie is like that. You go from bam, 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 from moment to moment to moment to moment to moment, except for the big memory, you know, the, the traumatic memory, the thing that sticks with you, the Trinity test. And that's why we are stuck. The editing is brilliant because you're going bang, 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 bang. Then you hit that sequence and you're stuck inside that moment for what feels like forever. Mm -hmm. And that is what those memories, those defining lives, life-altering memories are like. Compared to everything else, they span an eternity in our minds. I don't know how you make 180 minutes feel like 90, but they pulled it off. And it only got faster the second time, for the record. Oh, God. As I was collecting my thoughts on this, it's the first 90-minute, 180-minute movie since Thelma cut The Wolf of Wall Street, which is <laughs> like not a set of words that I personally say with any level of lightness. Like That's fucking incredible to be able to mm. do something like that and to keep it coherent and to not compromise any of the thematic weight to not compromise any of the actual scientific ideas and history that define the story so that a person like me who's like a fucking dork can still follow it all and like nothing is really lost in the pace nothing is really lost while keeping everybody else abreast i think this is going to alienate people but that pace is what's going to keep it from bottoming out with a lot of people is just that it moves that skillfully and expresses itself that concisely to be able to be understood by somebody who maybe doesn't have much knowledge at all about certainly the red scare elements of this film mm -hmm. still want to see that four hour cut though yeah I mean, I would do it. I'm literally looking at these showtimes in 70 millimeter, not IMAX, just like regular 70 millimeter. Like, are there any seats at 1130? No, it's sold out. Shit. It is absolutely insane that this has become a cultural event. Yeah, agreed. I mean, thank God. A movie for grown ass adults uh, is a cultural event. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll be okay. It's opening higher, at least domestically, than the latest entries from Fast and Furious, Mission Impossible. Indiana Jones, DC. Isn't that like a bittersweet pill that this movie has kind of murdered Mission Impossible? <laughs> well, Paramount should a little. Um, not be stupid with release dates next time. But also at the same time, who could have foreseen this happening? Yeah, We're talking about the fourth highest grossing weekend in box office history because of this and a couple of dolls. Tom Cruise is going to be fine. He'll be fine. I firmly empathize with that thing that Tom Cruise found himself dealing with losing these screens, but this is an IMAX movie. Like all due respect to Mission Impossible, that is not an IMAX movie. It's not. I don't even think it has the IMAX ratio shifts the way that Fallout does. Doesn't, no. So it's a big, beautiful movie, but like this was filmed and made for IMAX and IMAX was right to stand behind him and it paid off. It paid off because everybody that wants to see this movie knows that they want to see it in IMAX, in 70 millimeter if possible, if in 35 millimeter if possible, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I just think that it's so cool that 
It's something I feel like I've talked about with James Cameron, something I talked about with Maverick, where there's a consideration of medium and format. Nobody's doing it like Nolan. Nobody, nobody, not even Cameron himself is doing it at this level to be like, I am here to show you what IMAX is actually fucking capable of. That's why like Nolan absolutely bottomed out for us with Tenet, and we were still just as excited for this Bingo. as maybe any film of his before, maybe even more so. He is a show-up-no-matter-what kind of filmmaker. Mm-hmm. It's just the fact of it. Yeah. Day one. Even for someone that I'm deeply agnostic about, I'm always going to show up. It's yeah. that event. So much of my changing opinion with him is actually that he's always been really considerate of theaters. I mean, I love Dunkirk no matter what, but I got so much out of seeing Dunkirk and Interstellar theatrically this year because they're just made for that. They're just made so that you can swim in the image, so that you can just be fucking bathed in it. And this was like that. And I think it offers so much complexity and nuance for what it means to be bathing in it. Stuff like I don't know. I, I feel like we've been on this for a bit. The Fableman's and Nope and everything where it's like spectacle, but at what cost? Like, what mm-hmm. does it mean? It just gets absolutely the best out of both ends. We've been talking fucking forever. So yeah. I think that's pretty much where we're at. If anybody has any final words, let me know. Otherwise, for everybody that's been listening, thank you so much. We hope that you will tune in next week. Again, we're going to be talking about Chrissy Nolan and his films Memento, The Prestige, and Inception and our diverse and complex no opinions capes. about that. <laughs> I've been watching so much Nolan, I feel like a teenager who sprays axe everywhere. Like, get me out of here! <laughs> but we're going to do our best to dissect that material of one of our most important current filmmakers. Because Oppenheimer, I think, is like, uh, it's kind of a classic. Like, I think it's just yeah. it's everything that it needed to be. It's such a perfect marriage of text and auteur. And it was special, and I really enjoyed it, and I've been thinking about it a ton. I've really enjoyed getting to talk about it with all of you. Thank you guys all so much for coming on to discuss. Thank you guys for listening. Bye, everybody. Bye.